All right, welcome back, everybody. Hope you all had a good fourth, a happy, healthy one. Alongside Angel Munoz, who's taking care of the board today and producing the show, and uh, Adrian Bratis will be back tomorrow. I'm Steve Kaplowitz. Good to have you with us. 600 ESPN El Paso. Our good pal Jason Craig even stopped by today, and when he saw Angel, he said, okay, show's in good hands. I'm going to go and split. So we'll probably see uh, Jason either tomorrow or later this week. But first off, I hope all of you had a very um, happy and healthy celebration. Uh, disturbing news about what happened in Chicago yesterday and uh, other places around the country. It just seems like this has become the norm more often than not. And, and obviously in El Paso, we can also relate to that. But uh, nonetheless, Nonetheless, uh, it was the uh, 4th of July, and now we're back ready to go with you today. Three hours, no Chihuahuas baseball. They're off today uh, after playing yesterday. So we'll get Tim Haggerty back tomorrow at 6. But that gives us a chance to have a huge show today, and I mean it. Huge show because we've got a guy in studio that I haven't seen in person in years, but he's back here. He's back on the program. He's a former UTEP minor player, assistant coach, longtime assistant in the NBA, and now we're happy to have him back in El Paso. He's Greg Foster, and he leads us off here on the show today. Great to see you back, and uh, welcome back to the program. Greg, how are you? Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me back. Love, love, Always love to be on the show. Well, we love having you here, and you look terrific. That like nothing's changed, and I think that's the best part. What's the secret? What's the secret oh, to not to not aging? Look, looks are deceiving for sure. Ah, come on. But it, it's changed. But this body is hurting. But uh, you know, I've been trying to take care of it for the most part. Eat right, and that's ninety nine point nine percent of the whole deal. There you go. Yeah. And you're still at the gym working out, I would assume. Every once in a while, yeah, I get in there. Not as consistent as I would like to, but you know, as you as you age, you can't do it as much, and you can't go as hard. So. Have you done what so many people have done also, and that's if they've they've added such a they've added the gym to their home, so they can essentially work out from their house and not have to worry so much about going to and from. Yeah, I've never been able to do that. I'm a little old school. You like I like to get out of the house, go get it done, and go to the gym, and you know feel like you were actually really doing something, and you know kind of gives you something to do too. So. You know, it's almost like a part of your social life. I understand. Yeah. And if the gym was at the house, then it's almost too easy to say no to it. And yep. then you feel like, all right, what am I doing? I'm wasting time, wasting money. So at least Absolutely. this way, if you have a gym membership, it gets you out of the yeah, house. Yeah, that's true. You're paying for, you. paying for it. You know, it's going to motivate you to get there. How'd you celebrate the 4th, Greg? You know, I, didn't, I was asleep. <laughs> you slept through the 4th. Went up to the lake last weekend. Great fireworks, fireworks show up there, excuse me, and uh, had a great time and just had a little barbecue with some friends uh, early yesterday afternoon, but okay. I didn't stay up for any of the fireworks or any of that stuff. So shut it down early, man, like an old man should. Now, do you have a place in Elephant Butte? Uh, no, but I go up there a lot. You know, been getting some fishing in and um, with all this downtime. So that's been great. I you love know? that. I think yeah. that's great. And, yeah. and the nice thing for you is you've traveled so much throughout your career, both as a player and a coach. You can appreciate it when you've got uh, when you've got a lake an hour and a half, two hours away from here, and you can go up, spend time, go on the boat, and as you mentioned, fish, jet ski, do whatever you want, and, and yeah. realize that you can actually enjoy some water activities uh, yeah. around the El Paso yeah, area. Yeah, people don't think that, but you can, and it's that's just my piece. That's my where I have my peace of mind, and you know, I go up there. I've going been going up there ever since I played at Utah. You know, I don't think a lot of people know that, but right. my family, my kids have grown up there. I mean, we we used to rough it and go camping and bring the tents and the sleeping bags and you know we'll still do it periodically but um it's a little hard on the back when you wake up in the morning sleeping on that sand but you know i've met some good friends frank valorio's a fishing guide up there with landon chapman and he showed me some some things up there so i go up there and really really enjoy it you know did you do that growing up in uh, northern california was that part of things like going up uh, and and hiking and and doing those kind of things yeah you know we got outdoors and you know that's a testament to my mom you know she she taught me how to fish and she taught me how to camp 
camp in. We would do all that stuff, you know. Um, and so, yeah, you know, Carol Foster was a, an outdoorsman, and she passed that along. So uh, it's something that I've tried to pass along to my kids and, um, you know, my wife's family too. Did you ever go fishing with either Don Haskins uh, after your playing days or uh, Tim Floyd, who's still you doing know, a lot of that now? I never got a chance to go fishing with either of those guys, but I'm still hoping to get down to Coach's place in Mississippi. He's We're always sending pictures back and forth and telling fish stories and – uh, the bass here are a little smaller than the bass there, yes. so uh, ultimately I'd like to get out there. Uh, so yeah, it's it's you know it's it's been a good time, and you know it's just again it's just my little getaway. You know. Final fishing question: What's the largest fish you've ever caught? Well, out of Elephant Butte, um, caught about a twenty-seven inch walleye. Okay, and that was last week when we got some of that rain nice uh, no that's a lie my wife caught the 27 inch i caught a 24 inch it's still pretty good the fact that she caught a 27 oh inch man God. yeah they're pretty big walleye in that lake which is surprising mm-hmm. but uh the fishing is good it's the lake is down but the fishing is really good so when you catch the 27 or 24 inch walleye do you throw it back in or what do you do no you, you know the 27 inch we probably should have mounted you know i wasn't going to mount my 24 just because you know it wasn't as big as hers but sure we'll, we'll fillet them and we'll eat them. Walleye is probably my favorite freshwater fish to eat. It's nice. actually excellent. Now, have you uh, are you perfected the art of uh, let's say uh, skinning and then deboning and doing all that stuff? You know, you I was I was a novice until about a month ago, and it got ugly when I was filleting fish. I lost a lot of meat, but now I, I got it down. I, I believe. And, Good for um, you. Yeah, so yeah, you know, practice makes perfect. You're going to be hosting your own show uh, soon. You enough. know, my guy That'll Frank was a great coach. You know, I call him coach about you know and you yeah. know I caught him after I slaughtered some fish and wasted a bunch of meat going i went back and forgot something at his place and i saw him carving up all the rest of the meat off i said yeah i gotta get better at this unbelievable but now you know i heard um i guess about a year ago that that as soon as the nba season ended the following the 20 uh, 2021 season that you were coming back to el paso yep. and um you were gonna either i heard rumblings of retirement i heard that you were gonna just take a break um and we've been you know in communication off and on since then trying yeah. to get you on so Tell me what the last year's been like, because it's already been a year since you last coached in the NBA. You know, it's really been great. I, I mean, it's been I've been doing this basketball thing for the thirty, 30 for thirty years, and um, I never had you know any downtime like I've had this past six, seven months. So mm-hmm. it's been incredible for me. You know, I mean, there was a time where I. It probably wasn't the right time to do nothing, but this was the right time to do nothing. It gave me an opportunity to heal some injuries, heal some things with my body that needed to be healed. Uh, but more importantly, mentally, uh, just gave me a break mentally to, to get away from the game. So I guess the criteria for me, uh, if and when I do go back, is simply uh, there's a couple things. Um, knowing the people on the staff and winning, period. Um, those are important things to me because I want to enjoy it. I've been a part of a lot of rebuilds. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of work. Um, and when the expectations rise, you're not always there to see it through. Yep. Uh, and that example would be Milwaukee. Um, so I think we did a great job in Milwaukee, um, Coach Kidd's staff, and I'm glad to see he's having some great success in Dallas now. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the name of the game. So, um, you know, knowing the people, enjoying the people that I work with, and winning basketball games. You did the same thing in Atlanta. You you were right there too, and then right. all of a sudden the Hawks start to uh, explode yeah. and get better and better, and and you're right. not part of it. So well, I that's when you're that. a part of a rebuild situation. You're there to develop. You're mm-hmm. there to develop young young players and get them better. 
you know. Um, but you know, you got to make sure that whoever's in charge at that point is going to give you what you need to continue to succeed and meet expectations. Because ex- expectations, you know, they continue to climb as time goes on. I agree with you. Now, it's hard to believe, but uh, it was less than 10 years ago. You were here as a grad assistant and then becoming an assistant coach under Tim Floyd. And uh, the college basketball was, was your game. And then you parlayed that into the NBA. You've had a terrific run as an assistant coach on the bench. And I can imagine there, it's got to be so different, though, life in college versus getting back into the grind in the NBA and doing it for 82 games plus the postseason. Well, before the last two years, I would, you know, the, the, the thought of getting back into college basketball was very appealing to me more from a head coaching standpoint but now with the things you know with the transfer portal and nil i don't know that it's that important to me anymore you know would i do it if i had an opportunity to coach a a team like my alma mater the minors absolutely but with everything that goes into it now i don't know how you know sexy it is to do it you know i mean we definitely have to figure out what's going on with the nil in order to compete and yeah. retain players and um, bring in major talent. So until um, we get that figured out, it's going to be tough. Well, the game has changed. It's yep. just what it comes down it to. It is what it is, yeah. And if you want to be a part of it, then you got to be able to deal with that stuff. So I've always said that what the NIL has done is it's made compensating players legal. Because we knew for years and years it happened under the table at all the big schools, and, uh, and that was just kind of the norm. I doubt when you came to UTEP in the late 80s there was a huge financial pack Package attached to it, but there were plenty of players that were getting compensated. It right. just wasn't something that was being uh, allowed to be discussed. And now you've taken ultimately that NIL umbrella and you've been able to, I don't want to say disguise the compensation, but in a way, you've made it legal for teams now to, to pay players to go jump from school to school. That's exactly what it is. You know, no more, no less. You know, you're paying players to come play at your school. And if you identify a player that might not be a top-tier, five-star type player, and he comes to your school initially and you get him better, guess what? you got to pay for him then, too, because he's going to want to leave. He's going to get poached. Um, so, again, you know, in order to prevent our players from taking off to other schools and having to retool every year, which seems to be the case, yep. even before the money uh, for NIL was, you know, uh, brought up um, – you know, we got to get that part figured out. I don't want to say Roy Williams and Mike Krzyzewski would still be coaching if we didn't have the portal and the NIL, but there's a chance they would be. I think they, even even the best coaches in the game, got tired of it, realized that they're going to take a hit like everybody else, and after all the years they've coached and all the national championships they've won, right. they don't want to deal with that anymore. I totally agree with you. I totally agree they, they, they would still be coaching right now. But ultimately... Coaches have something to do with it too, because they'll sign a kid. Yep, they'll leave for the uh, a bigger, high, more high-paying job, and and that becomes a problem. So I mean, but it is they're gonna have to get it figured out because it's it's getting a little crazy. I agree with you, and and I can understand that from your standpoint that you've never been a head coach in college before. That could take some of the appeal away because you realize now that if you're at a school that doesn't have necessarily all the resources like bigger schools do, then you could have a really good roster run one year and then you got to just do it all over again the following year. And even if you do have NIL resources, that could become the ultimate norm is just 
building a team from season to season because you never know who's going to stay and who's going to go. Absolutely. I mean, it is a challenge. And, you know, but UTEP has a history. It has the tradition. It has the resources. You know, people, <laughs> people here locally, there's some very well-to-do people here. Um, and it's how you approach those people and how you get them to help the program out. Now, you, you, say, you say it has the history and the tradition, and I agree with you, but it's crazy to think about what the last 30 years have been like. You mentioned 30 years, really, since you've been doing the pro game. All right, let's take a look at UTEP since 92, okay? So since 92, we're not counting 92, right. they've been to the NCAA tournament a total of three times. Um, lost in the first round each and every one of those times, and the domination of hanging banners like we saw for so many years during your heyday in playing career, those days are over. So it's almost like despite UTEP's tradition and history, they've got to create it all over again because if you have not been alive in the 80s or early 90s, you don't even know what UTEP is in terms of college basketball other than maybe the movie Glory Road if you've had a chance to see it. Fair point, fair point. I mean, and it's got to be fixed. Do I have all the answers? I don't. I do believe that tradition still means something, and uh, I do believe in this place. And I think maybe that's what it takes, so that someone that believes in this place and is connected to all those people out there that may have the resources to help this program. Why do you think it's been so tough? Over these last 30 years. Because well, remember, gotta, you even had Tim Floyd here for an extended period of time. He talked about bringing UTEP back to the 80s, and it, it didn't happen for him. And it hasn't happened really for, for anybody because either they weren't here long enough to see it all the way out more than a couple of years, or they realized after a few years that it's not what they expected it to be when they first arrived. That's a great question, you know, and you gotta you got to question people's motivations at different times in their lives. Yeah. I think I was a big part of what was happening in terms of recruiting at that time with Floyd. I thought we had a shot at some really good players and had some good players. Um, I took off to go coach in the NBA, which was a great opportunity for me. But I thought that we had some momentum going at that particular point. You know, so it's really about you know creating this collaborative environment between coaching staffs and our uh, alumni and our boosters because these collaboratives are being put together by boosters at other schools. And so it's not like this town doesn't have any money. There's plenty of money here to help this basketball and football program out in terms of NIL. Now, are you going to get five to six or seven guys on your roster uh, NIL deals? Probably not. But can you get two? Can you get Greg Foster, Tim Hardaway, and Antonio Davis an NIL deal? I think that's possible. So there's a way to do this stuff, you know. But um, it's got to be creative. It's you know, it's really not that damn creative, Steve. I want to say you have to get creative. <laughs> you got to find two, two or three really good dudes yep. and pay them. Yeah. Because you're la- you're able to do so. So. Yeah. I want to. I want to. I want to play devil's advocate with you. When we come back. Yeah, to that, no it's, problem. It's a great subject, and I love it. We got Greg Foster here with us in our Lubingo studios. If you want to weigh into the show, you can right now. I've got lines available for you. Nine one five five zero five six zero zero nine is our phone number. That's five zero five six zero zero nine. He's with us for the first hour. You can also weigh in on Twitter at six hundred ESPN El Paso or our free mobile app powered by United Bank. Three ways to get right on in. And through to the program. And before I go to Charlie One, need to thank our buddy Pinky out there in Santa Teresa. Drop by, and uh, I got lucky today. 
Pinky got himself that Midland Rockhounds cap that I talked about a week ago that looks just like a UTEP cap. It's their road cap, but it didn't fit him. It was too big. He said, you know what? It's not. It doesn't fit. I need. Uh, I, I, do you want it? I said, absolutely. Brought it over. Fit well. Thank you very much, Pinky, for that. I appreciate that, and we'll definitely add that to the collection. All right, more with Greg as we continue, but first let's go to Charlie One and start it off with this traffic update. 22 past the hour as we continue with former UTEP minor and longtime uh, assistant NBA and, and UTEP assistant coach Greg Foster in our Lubingo studios. You want to weigh into the show, uh, you can do it, 915-505-6009. That is our telephone number. It's 915-505-6009. Or tweet the show, 600 ESPN El Paso. Before we started today, uh, Pinky uh, had a chance to meet Greg Foster, and uh, we already have a picture. He put a, t- a picture of that up on Twitter, and he even tweeted out, great to meet Greg today. Of course, he had to give a fisherman's story, and of course, he told a fib. His wife caught the big fish, is what uh, Pinky tweeted out at 600 ESPN El Paso. Good job there, and uh, thank you, Jaime, for mentioning that story and also the great picture of the two. And thank you for the cap. The cap is definitely going to get to good use. We appreciate that. Greg Foster, uh, we talked about this with Greg before the show. We are talking about uh, NIL a little bit, and during the last segment, he mentioned the fact that, you know, get two or three guys, pay them a ton of money, and and um, and start competing. You wonder, Greg, um, with that, does it get to the point where three guys are making a lot of NIL and the others are not making any NIL? How tough is it to keep a locker room together, especially in college basketball versus the pros, to where you got a lot of 18 to 21-year-olds and some people either might not want to pass the, the basketball to them or, or play the right way because they are a little jealous or a lot jealous of the kind of money that's being paid. Well, welcome to you know professional basketball. That's just the way it goes. you know, And guys are jealous of each other anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I... I've got to say that you've got to look at it like the old NBA, and that's the only way that I can see that mid-majors can survive. You can't pay across the board. Um, I think, you know, um, in a perfect world, I think that would be great. But the problem with, you know, now is some guys, I mean, it's not a problem now. It's been throughout the history of bas- Some guys are just better than other guys. Mm-hmm. Some guys just deserve more. Okay, so my thought is, you take care of two or three guys like, you know, Jordan, Pippen, Stockton and Malone, yeah. Kobe and Shaq, and the rest of you guys fall in line. We'll get you something, but I can't give you the same as this other guy. Now, the problem becomes the coach has to manage all that. I get it, but that's the era we're living in. It's true. Yeah, so that's the, uh, the poor coach probably needs, just needs a general manager, someone to manage all that, somebody to track guys' progress. Because when you bring in a guy, you develop him, you get him better, he's going to get poached, like we mentioned before. And yep. you're going to lose that kid. That's so true. you might have to create tears. It just where, stinks that right now, UTEP and other mid-majors could ultimately be turned into junior colleges, meaning that as soon as a player gets good, they're as good as gone. Because unless they're, they're the exception to the rule that feels so grateful for the opportunity right. that they're going to pass up on a chance to make big dollars because they feel like they could keep winning and developing here and then go to the pros, uh, you're right. A lot of these schools are going are gonna to lose out to the, to the high majors that are going to throw six-figure NIL deals or more right at them to try to bring them on board right well i think you know the other thing is you know with the transfer portal and i think you brought it up earlier that you know coach hafkins used to you know give guys second chances guys that were on their last leg and guys that once you got here could be coached because you had nowhere else to go um and i think you know i hope that's 
part of Coach Golding's plan going forward. And I think it's nothing unique because everybody's doing it. They want older guys in the first place. So yeah. The people that are being hurt are the young kids out of high school. I mean, it's almost like you're going to have to go back to freshman teams because right. those guys coming out of high school don't have a chance because coaches don't want them. They just don't want them. They want a guy that's 23, 24 years old that's mm-hmm. a fifth-year senior you know, that went to Tennessee Tech and now he's ready to make a jump. And um, it's a challenging environment for these coaches these days. People forget, Greg, when you were coming on board at UTEP, right? And you were playing with uh, Tim Hardaway, and 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 those teams were going to the uh, going to the tournament year after year. We came very close to bringing Gary Payton on board to join the party. Yeah, it should it absolutely. should have happened. In fact, had Gary signed with UTEP when he was brought in on the visit and not gone to St. John's like he right. was at the time, he would have been a minor. We would have seen Gary Payton and Tim Hardaway in the same backcourt. Yeah, probably would have had a national championship. You know what I mean? It's, I think so, crazy, too. crazy to think. You know, uh, I kind of blew that one, too. You know, we could have just done a package deal coming out of high school and – would have been a done deal. So I owe UTEP. I feel like I've always owed UTEP well, just first, from that standpoint. First but, off, uh, right out of high school, you went to UCLA. I did. I did. But uh, me and Gary and Coach Floyd, when he um, was recruiting me, said, you know what? You come to UTEP, you can bring your point guard with you, and you can bring a buddy an, and another guy. You know, just the guy. Yeah. <laughs> but that guy wasn't obviously Gary Payton no, at the time. But uh, but he definitely wanted Gary. You know, oh. but um, – I pulled the plug on it, decided I was going to go to UCLA. They pl- pulled the plug on everybody else, and the rest is history. So, big mistake. But you came but, back, um, and Gary nearly came with you yeah. uh, the second time around. I'll tell you what, man. I, that was the biggest mistake of, my, a mistake of my career is not playing collegiately with him. He just made the game that much easier. That's how good he was. So, um, But ultimately, he went on to have an incredible career. And um, But, yeah, we got to figure out a way to bring those kind of guys. Yeah back into the fold. It's not impossible. But and, it is and, and, you only, and you only played with Tim Hardaway. What a, what a, what a consolation yeah, that turned out to be. Yeah, we, we weren't bad. We weren't bad back then. <laughs> That's true. 28 past the hour. Let's go to Drew. He joins us first up on the show. 505-6009, our telephone number. Two lines open for Greg Foster in our Lubingo studios. Drew, good to have you on the show. How you doing? Hey, thanks for taking my call. I didn't even know Greg Foster was back in town. I used to see him around from, you know, here and there. It's good to have him back. Thanks, Drew. Hey, uh, Greg, um, you, what do you think of my Memphis Grizzlies? You I'll tell you what. they're doing the right things. they got some good players. I was having How far do com- you think they can go eventually? I think the sky's the limit. Personally, I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine the other night. They're, they're my favorite team in the league because they have a culture already. You know, they have that level of toughness and they have talent. Um, again, goes back to what we were talking about. They have John Morant. Um, and who's the other star? Who's the other star? Yeah, Bain is pretty good. He's who's that? Developing. Uh, Desmond Bain, he's developed. Yeah, developing. I mean, but he's a role player. I think you would agree with yeah. me. He's a heck of a role player. You know, but they just maxed out John Morant, and they have incredible culture with all their role players. Steven Adams, the Jaron Jackson kid who unfortunately just got hurt again. Uh, hopefully he'll have a speedy recovery. Um and the rest of their crew, I mean, they play hard and they play a role. And I think that's kind of a, an example of what UTEP can do. But, uh, so they don't, have a, they don't have a super five over there in Memphis, and that's why I really respect them. I mean, they play hard, and culture is important to them. And they're one of maybe three teams that has that kind of culture in the NBA. So, Drew, yeah, they're my favorite team in the NBA right now. Yeah. Okay, and now – 
on your former team, the Utah Jazz, dealt uh, Gobert. You think they're gonna might move Mitchell? And what do you think of that Gobert trade? God, I have to think that they're not done. That was a, a huge, huge risk if mm-hmm. if you're Minnesota to give up all those picks. You know, um, now I understand those picks might not be like in the top ten, but you know, to play t- the you know twin towers again, if you're going to commit to that kind of basketball, then great. They're just going to have to be incredible defensively. I mean, and I think that was actually one of the problems Utah had. I think they really depended too much on Gobert mm-hmm. uh, defensively, and there wasn't enough accountability for the Donovan Mitchells uh, and the uh, and the supporting cast. So they were good enough to get into the playoffs, maybe even win a round, but you know, with the way they play defense and depending on Gobert as opposed to using a, a team defensive scheme, um, you know, it was always a short-lived playoff run. And finally, what's your opinion of uh, Zion Williamson and uh, Pelicans? Uh, do you think that he can stay healthy? If so, that they're, they're going to be a threat also. Well, that's I'll t- listen to that's, you there. Thanks that, for taking my call. Good job, Drew. Calling. I think that's the $200 million question when yep. it comes to yep. Zion Williamson. He's got to – I would think he has to cut some weight. You know, he's got to. I mean, with as explosive as he is and as much as he weighs, and um, I think C.J. McCollum, that trade was incredible. I mean, they took off after that. And this guy's got to be a part of that because they can be pretty special, but he's got to stay healthy. I'm with you. And uh, that was a big risk for them. And I don't know everything that went into that contract and negotiations and the language in the contract. Um, But, man, they they put themselves on, you know, the chopping block now. He's got to perform. Bottom of the hour, Greg Foster in our Lubingo studios. I'm going to read you a tweet from Jeannie Buss. This was yesterday she tweeted this out, and here we go. I miss KB. Talk about Kobe Bryant. He would understand and explain everything that I'm not allowed to. Honestly, he was the greatest Laker ever. He understood team over self, meaning your rewards would come. If you valued team goals over your own, then everything would fall into place. All can reply. Is Jeannie taking a subtle shot at LeBron here and really talking about how she wishes she still had a Kobe Bryant type of player because of what he was about with team over self? Because you read between the lines, and that's the first thing she says, is he understood team over self, meaning your rewards would come if you valued team goals over your own, then everything would fall into place. And I kind of wonder, is that a backhanded shot at, at LeBron right I, now? I don't necessarily think it's a backhanded shot at LeBron as it is at you know the league in general. You know, that's just the league, you know. Nobody's a warrior like Kobe Bryant was. He'd put the team on his back, and the team didn't necessarily like it all the time. But he was going to will his way to a win. He's going to shoot the ball. He's going to man the ball. And, you know, he wasn't the easiest guy to play with. But guess what he did do? He led by example. And you could never question that. You know, you couldn't argue that. And so if unless you were willing to work as hard as him, which there were very few, mm-hmm. um, you couldn't say a damn thing. You played with him. You played against him. Yep. You won a ring yep. uh, with him one season, and Shaq was uh, was also part of that mm-hmm. fun. And so, I mean, you can speak firsthand about Kobe because you you knew him. You knew him from the time you you just played uh, in the league, uh, both as a teammate and and as an opponent. Absolutely, he's yeah, just uh, you know the an incredible work ethic. The only guy that comes close to his work ethic in today's game is Giannis and Tentacumpo over there in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. um, and he's taken. Kobe's attitude, put it into his own game, 
And, you know, I mean, the guy is relentless in the way he works. Every day, twice a day, to the point where, you know, his own, you know, front office had to try to get him to relax. And there's no way he was going to do that. You know, Kobe was the same way. Uh, and he was, he, was a, he was a really good teammate because you knew what you, what you were going to get. You know, yeah. even if you don't like a guy, as long as you know what you're going to get. And I liked the guy a lot. Did you have Giannis his first year? I'd had him for a couple years. Yeah. yeah. So, um, again, it just goes back to what we were talking about. Expect- expectations start to grow. You know, you work with a guy, but that's the league in general. You know, um, you know, big names come, you know, available in terms of coaches and whatnot, and things change. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's so important to be with a team that has the proper kind of culture. Yep. So you don't have to worry about those things. And, and by those teams, I'm talking about the Spurs, the Miami Heat, and the Memphis Grizzlies. And those are the guys that I think they're trying to build that um, in New Orleans, as crazy as that sounds, but it seems like they're going in that direction. And I think Monty Williams might have brought that, or Chris Paul brought that to Phoenix. And you can see the impact that he's had on that team. I love both of them. I mean, I think yeah. Monty Williams, is. I, right. I like him as a player. He's right. done a terrific job as a coach, and Absolutely. we all know about Chris Paul, although he's still that, that NBA title is so elusive for a guy that will no doubt be going into um, Springfield one day as a, as a Hall of Famer. No doubt. You know, it's it's just so hard to, win, hard to win in this league, and it's really hard to win at a high level. And, you know, only one team wins a championship. Yep. Um, and um, I really thought Boston had it this year. You know, speaking of a guy that's done a great job, you know, that guy up there in Boston has done an incredible job. And, uh, you know, I, I, the one thing that worried me about Boston this year was simply that they, I thought they might have been happy to be there. Mm-hmm. I think they let f- games four and five, I believe, slip. And they should have won those games, and that could have been their championship. Once they let those go, it was a problem. Yeah, but Udoka had a great rookie season yeah, as a coach. Absolutely. Uh, and Brad Stevens moving into the front office turned out to be a great absolutely. move for the Celtics. Absolutely. And I should have mentioned them in that group of teams that has a great culture because they seem like they have great guys. Does Danny Ainge in Utah, is that something that's going to work? You know what? I believe, you know, with with him and the rest of their staff and the culture that ownership has always possessed there in the fan base, they're going to make it work. Okay. One way or another, and you know, uh, and then you got the uh, the other end of the spectrum, and that's what's going on in Brooklyn right now. Kevin Durant wants out, asked for a trade. Uh, Kyrie opts back into his deal, which yeah. kind of put every all, all the you know the, the, the wheels in motion. Right. A few years ago, everybody thought Brooklyn was buying themselves yeah. a title because they all formed there, and everybody was all excited. And you think about the injuries, the egos, and everything that you've had to deal with so far uh, with the Nets, and and ultimately that situation has turned into. What's wrong with the NBA? Yeah, it's really hard to buy a championship. You know, I think it's been proven time and time again, you know. Um, and, you know, I know Kobe, I mean, uh, excuse me, Kyrie is being slammed and Durant has been getting slammed. And, you know, they have to, you know, bear the brunt of a, you know, a lot of that uh, uh, bad press. But, you know, ultimately, I think what a lot of people aren't talking about is, you know, if it wasn't for COVID, maybe they would have had a shot. You know, the kid just decided he wasn't going to take the shot. You know, it was his prerogative. No one agrees with it. I mean, 99.9% of the people out there don't agree with it. But, I mean, if COVID never happened, then what? You know, I don't know. Were they good enough to win? Were they good enough to coincide? You know, they lose James Harden. But if you have James Harden, Durant, and, and Kyrie Irving, you know, healthy, and Durant was hurt too. So, a lot. I mean, there was a lot of little things that happened on the outside of all this um, that, that made it difficult and, and, and has brought the Brooklyn Nets to where they're at at this point. The other part of that is, you know, Durant is just not a leader type. You know, I think he needs to go somewhere where, you know, um, 
He could just fit in. Uh, he's a hell of a piece to fit in. Trust me. Well, I mean, he's he's my Golden State. Guy. Yeah. I mean, why leave? Why leave? You know, I mean, if, if you want it to be your team, if you want to be the guy, then you have to be willing to stay, build, and lead. Yep. I don't necessarily know if he wants that responsibility. Maybe now, after Brooklyn, he doesn't. I mean, oh, God, it's yeah. possible that he thought after yeah. Golden State – that was the next step in his evolution. Right. And now, a couple of years later, he realizes it's not going to happen the yeah. way he envisioned. So why, why not just go back and being, like you said, a great player on a great team, if that's, if that's the case. And he'll get slammed for that, too. You know, but nobody will respect him for that. But ultimately, you, you know, at some point in time, you've got to understand who you are. You know, um, and... Um, if legacy is important. I don't know how important we were speaking of that uh, earlier when I walked in. How, how, how important is legacy anymore? Or is it just all about money? Is it all about it, you know, getting it easily? Um, and, you know, it's just, you know, I was talking to a buddy of mine this morning at breakfast. You know, it's, it's getting perks without pressure. You know, everybody wants the perks, but nobody wants the pressure of, of, of dealing with you know, being a leader and having to be responsible and having to drag 12, 12 other guys with you. It's tough. It's tough. At the same time, look at free agency. Look at how easy it is to get perks these days. It yep. seems like everybody's getting paid. Oh They're getting paid ridiculous amounts of money no matter what they do, yeah. and that's the problem. Maybe the league has gotten to the point where the perks have become so good that the rest of it is secondary right now. God, I was sick watching those huge numbers on the ticker, man. I was like, wow. Yeah. I mean, just guys getting paid 13, 14, 17 million per year, and then guys making $50 million a year or more. Basketball. Yes. I think, you know, you bring up a great point. You know, I mean, I mean, ownership has made it easy for guys. So it's really on ownership. They need to take back their league. Um, now, I wear two hats as a coach. It's really difficult to coach that. As a player, it's a great time to be in the NBA. Incredible. And to the, all those players out there, I said, get every dime you can. That's exactly. You know, you're a pro. You're a mercenary. You play for money. You know, everybody talks about playing for love. These guys play for money. Sure. And that's what's happening in college now. It's sad, but it's true. Could you imagine the kind of money you'd be making oh. now if you were, let's say, 25 years later with your skill set playing in the NBA Steve, right now? Steve, let's enjoy the show, please. Thank you. Brad. I'll try not <laughs> I mean, to depress you too I much. Mean, geez, Louise, it's uh, it's crazy. Um, and do I think about it? Absolutely. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but, uh, but it is what it is. You know, I mean, the league is healthy and the TV money is incredible mm-hmm. and uh, you know, kids are different. You know, it's not just in basketball. It's every walk of life. It's right, everything. Right. You know, kids are just different. And as a coach, you got to learn how to coach them. You, it, it's difficult. Kids want to know why. And with social media, they want it now. Yep. They don't see all the hard. They don't. No one sees the backstory. There is a backstory. Uh, and these guys in the NBA, they do work hard. Um, but, you know, we, we put together staffs in the NBA, literally coaching staffs of guys that can actually practice, like former players, former overseas guys, guys right out of college. Um, for example, my son could be coaching in the NBA right now because you can play a little bit. And if you have half a brain, you can do video and you can talk to guys. But most importantly, you can be a body is the mm-hmm. point that in practice because they don't practice anymore. You know, I mean, if you scrimmage, you might scrimmage for 45 minutes. And then it's done. And then it's individual workouts. So for guys on an NBA roster that aren't playing that much, these younger guys, former players that are on the staff, they might be there just to play against those guys. That's incredible. It's nuts. 
We'll come back. We'll wrap it up with Greg. So stay with us. You want to duck one in? 505-6009, our telephone number, 600 ESPN on Twitter. We'll be back right after this. 48 past the hour. Wrapping up the hour with uh, Greg Foster. We continue here on Sports Talk once again. A lot of ways to get in. Phones, Twitter. You can also tweet the show, uh, 600 ESPN El Paso, or even message us on our mobile app, uh, powered by United Bank, as we continue with uh, Greg, who has been great, giving us a little insight into the NBA game, the college game, how things have changed just in the last couple of years. Um, What's going to evolve more, the pros or college? I mean, you saw what NIL is already doing for the pro game. You see the kind of money that's being thrown around in the NBA in just the last couple of years alone, Greg, it's crazy to think about how both leagues have changed so much. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the, you know, the scope of you know what's going to exactly happen with collegiate basketball and sports in general. You see USC, you see UCLA. They're you know the the TV money for you know the Big Ten is is ridiculous. It's a billion dollars. So those each, each of those schools is going to get what eighty ninety million dollars. So that's right. You know, I mean, what's that going to do to, you know, conference uh, resettlement? You know what I mean? I mean, there's going to be teams moving and changing and try to position in themselves. And I think you're going to see some changes starting to happen in the NBA with the owners trying to take their uh, power back, you know, so to speak, because the collective bargaining agreement is is up from renegotiation here pretty soon. And um, I just think there's tired of having to deal with the situations that they've had to deal with, like in Brooklyn. I'm sure, I'm sure we could have a, a potential long work stoppage as uh, the owners really try to to get, like you said, get their str- you know get their stranglehold back on yeah, the game. Yeah, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see what they do. Meanwhile, college-wise, it's so interesting because with USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten, it seems like now you're going to have two big conferences. You're going to have the SEC and the Big Ten – then you're going to have everybody else. Right. If the rumors are true that the Big 12 is trying to lure six-pac-12 schools to go and join, which is the rumors now, right. Arizona, Arizona State, you also have Colorado, you have Utah, and then potentially even Oregon and Washington. Wow. So if that happens, that leaves Stanford, Cal, Washington State, and Oregon State as the only teams left in the Pac-12. So that could mean that the Mountain West gets raided or joined in in the big in, in the Pac-12. And and if that happens, chances are the Pac-12 joins and goes from let's say a, a power 5 to maybe a second or a third tier once all the smoke clears with 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 the way college uh, athletics is restructuring it's, itself. Exactly. I mean, there's going to be a ton of movement. That's my belief and unfortunately because of NIL and the transfer portal, it, it's hard for you to get behind a team and and their culture, because there is none, yeah. you know, or, you know, watch a guy for four years, because you can't, you know, it's always something new every year. And I think young people, as opposed to older people, are are somewhat used to that. Uh, but then it, then there becomes, you know, do they even want to go to a game? Because they're streaming, there's TV, they can watch it anywhere they're at. Right. You know, so us old folks that really want to go and, uh, you know, create a somewhat of a relationship with the players – uh, and understanding and who they are and watching their development, you really don't get that. So I agree um, with you. It's kind of scary times. Let's get back to you for a second. Yeah. You mentioned earlier in the show that if you had the right opportunity, whether it was you know 
coaching at your alma mater as a head coach like you talked about. And, and it's no secret you've been interested the last couple of job openings to come right. back here and be a head coach. Or go back to the NBA for the right situation, meaning a chance to win and a coaching staff you, you want to be a part of, right. head coach. Um, that for now, here El Paso is, is kind of where you're at in this, at this particular point in time in your, in your life. Do you have any interest whatsoever in joining an NBA front office and moving up to the front office and possibly becoming a GM, an assistant GM, or something like that? I'm glad you brought that up. So I'm going to, um, and we didn't discuss this before the show or anything, so no. that is a great point. Um, I'm going to the Summer League to kind of explore those options. Brent Berry is a good friend of mine. He's with the San Antonio Spurs. He's vice president of player operations. Um, and so I'm going to go sit down with them and watch some practices and pick his brain. And because I think that's, you know, if you're not going to be a head coach for me, uh, that's where my evolution lays. Uh, because, you know, being an assistant um, in the right situation would be great. But ultimately, it's not a huge challenge if I'm being honest. Um, being a head coach, the most fun I've ever had as a coach is coaching our summer league team when I was with the Hawks. It mm-hmm. was great. Um, you're getting to put your own stamp on guys and offensively and defensively and uh, get to manage guys and, um, you know, and let your assistants do their thing and empower them. And yeah. so that was enjoyable for me. Um, so, you know, but with that said, if those opportunities don't uh, present – uh, I would love to learn more about what goes on, you know, in running an NBA team on a daily basis uh, or, you know, even collegiately, you know. So, um, yeah, you know, like UTEP, I would love to help them figure out this whole NIL environment um, and help any way I can. I'll tell you, you this know? much. It's also interesting to me. People don't realize this, but years ago, right after you got out of the game, right. you got your license in being a player agent. That was something you did yeah. some time ago. So you already – we're thinking about representing players. So to me, the front office um, aspect of it makes sense because it's kind of falls in line of things you've, you've done in the past. Right. You know, I think, you know, one of the things that makes general managers special um, and not every general manager has to have this, but, you know, I was talking to Brent the other day and he is, I asked him about coaching and he said, yeah, if something presented, he would like that opportunity because it would help him in his current role. Mm-hmm. You would know the day-to-day ins and outs of how your staff, your coaching staff performs, what they need, how much work goes into it. Um, and the reality of you know being on that side of things in an NBA vi- environment on a daily basis. So, And I think that just makes those guys in the front office that much better. This hour has flown by. It is great it really to has. see you. Come back, and uh, I wish you nothing but the best in the Summer League. I hope something happens sooner than later, and I uh, look forward to uh, the next time we get to Thanks, chat. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it, man. Sorry I've been so slippery, but it's always great to be here. Well, you're here. That's all that matters. All He's right. Greg Foster, folks. Shahan Jayaraja next as Sports Talk continues. It's the start of hour number two here on Sports Talk. Welcome back, everybody. Steve Kaplowitz with you uh, as uh, we continue along with Angel Munoz. Uh, Adrian Broaddus will be coming back uh, with us tomorrow, and I know this is a subject that Adrian is going to be chomping at the bit to talk about, especially with the news that Dennis Dodd broke earlier today with the Big 12 and talks to add several Pac-12 teams. Could be up to six, actually. Pretty crazy when you look at the latest. And that brings us to Shahan Jayaraja, who joins us from CBSSports.com, our old pal from Dave Campbell's Texas Football. And now Shahan's going to uh, dig in on uh, Dennis's story and possible ramifications 
Great to have you back on the show, Shahan. And uh, as if things couldn't get juicier with conference realignment, the Big 12 news is what everybody's speculating. However, six is uh, two more than what some thought would end up happening when the smoke clears here. No doubt. And of course, uh, things are still fluid at this point. I I think that at this moment, if I had to guess, I feel pretty comfortable that the four schools, especially that kind of people expect, are in a good position to uh, duck for the Big 12 if things kind of work out that way. Those four schools, of course, being the two Arizona schools, Arizona and Arizona State, along with Utah and Colorado making their return to the Big 12. Uh, I think that Washington and Oregon is going to be a longer process. Uh, it's going to, I think, depend a lot on what Notre Dame does and whether the Big Ten kind of gains interest in them. So a lot of moving pieces still on the table, but it looks like the Big 12 is standing up and trying to be the aggressor. Let's talk about Notre Dame for just a second before we get back to the Big 12. I know if they had a choice, they would like to remain independent. It seems like for uh, Notre Dame, that's the best of everything. Do you believe that as the latest shifting in in schools to to these big uh, power fives go, that Notre Dame is going to be forced to have to make a choice and, and not just stay independent? I think we're starting to move in that direction, right? I mean, I made a comparison on another show earlier, and it's kind of like, look, the Dallas Cowboys are the biggest and most powerful brand in the NFL in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, they can't be independent, right? You can't be independent of the NFC and the AFC in the NFL. And and we're starting to move a little bit closer to that in college football. Now, we're never going to get fully there because I don't think that it's going to be a fully closed-off playoff. I don't think it's going to just be, you know, an SEC conference championship game and a, you know, divisional round or anything like that. Like, I, it's not going to work exactly like that, I don't think. So, you know, maybe Notre Dame has the ability to do it. But the amount of money that they would potentially be leaving on the table if they don't join one of these leagues also could be prohibitive. You know, are they going to be able to get more than $100 million from NBC or something like it? I don't know the answer to that, right? I I mean, it's going to be an interesting question heading forward. I'd be curious, right? Notre Dame is a unique brand in the history of college football. They are obviously very powerful. Uh, And so I'd wonder if they can get, you know, whether it's some kind of carve-out where they can have a hybrid deal with NBC because of their historic partnership or whether it is, you know, maybe – uh, you know, maybe they have a unique sort of scheduling model. I, I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but I do think that by the end of it, uh, I, I think Notre Dame's going to have to probably end up in a conference, and that conference is probably going to have to be the Big Ten. At the same time, Notre Dame might be able to have their own call, right? Couldn't they be in a position where they could ultimately choose the conference they want to go to? No question. No question. And so, of course, they have a longstanding relationship with the ACC. And if they feel like the ACC can give them enough value from a scheduling perspective and from a football perspective, maybe that's enough, right? Maybe that's enough to where, you know, NBC pays them a certain amount, the ACC pays them a certain amount, and they feel like they can be competitive. Because, you know, realistically, uh, Notre Dame is one of those brands that, if they're good, they're going to get put into the field. They're going to get put into a college football playoff. They're going to get put into a system. But I think that the question just becomes, can they make the amount of money that they need to make to compete with everybody else? And if they do that, uh, does not having sort of a home, how does that affect them uh, in terms of competitiveness for national championships and for playoffs and all that? And if you look at Notre Dame right now, uh, you know, they've kind of uh, been a middling recruiting team in terms of the contenders over the years. 
Well, Marcus Freeman has him number one in both 2023 and 2024 right now in the recruiting rankings. So, you know, I, I can't imagine that they'd be happy being in a position where they're putting their chances to compete for a national championship at risk. Uh, and, and so if that's the direction that we end up going in. I think that's the kind of decision they'll have to make. Shahan Jairaja joining us right now here on Sports Talk from CBSSports.com. Uh, as far as the Big 12 goes, look, they lose Texas, Oklahoma. They were quickly then to react and, and take three schools from the AAC uh, along with BYU uh, to try and build it back up. Uh, any regrets, do you think, now that this Pac-12 situation has almost opened the door for them to go after uh, potentially six schools? I don't think at all, because I think that the only reason that they're in this situation is because they were so proactive last time. Because, you know, there was talk at, at uh, last year that, you know, a lot of the schools, specifically Texas Tech, you know, I, we heard a lot that they were trying to ask the Pac-12 to potentially admit them and Baylor and TCU and some of those other schools. And then we'd heard, of course, that uh, Oklahoma State was, was talking to the SEC. We heard that Kansas was talking to the Big Ten. All these schools were trying to scatter at this point last year. And instead, by kind of staying together, by adding the best of the rest, you know, I think that you would uh, pretty clearly argue that the four that they added are the best uh, brands that they could get outside of the Power Five at the time. I, I think that they've put themselves in a position of strength because now, you know, with the Pac-12 losing USC specifically, I, I think that that puts the Big 12 in a position of strength with 12 schools, with having taken all of the best options, right? I mean, the Pac-12 would love the opportunity to take a BYU right now, but BYU's already accounted for. So mm-hmm. I, I think that the fact that they took those four schools really has worked out for them in a big way. We'll see, uh, you know, long-term whether they end up merging or, you know, there's a lot of questions about how this whole thing is going to be structured, but I don't think that the Big 12 would be in the position that it's in right now if they hadn't have taken those four other schools. So I've heard a lot that uh, when the Big 12 was looking to take from the Pac-12, the four they wanted for sure were the two Arizona schools along with Utah and Colorado. Washington and Oregon intrigue me because some believe that they want to go to the Big 10. But ultimately, if they decide to uh, go to the Big 12, if the offer is open, uh, do you think that's a potential uh, long-term spot for them? Or is it more of a placeholder before they possibly could get a chance to go to the Big 10? Yeah, I think that uh, I think that for them, they're probably going to wait to make that decision until they know what Notre Dame is going to do. If Notre Dame decides very firmly, we're not going to the Big Ten, and the Big Ten's like, well, if Notre Dame's not going, then we're not realigning even more, then I think that Oregon and Washington have to make a tough decision. But I don't think that they're going to rush it. Uh, right now, the Pac-12 television contract runs out in 2024. That's when USC and UCLA are going to move on. I think that Washington and Oregon basically have all the way up until then before they really have to make a decision. So I don't expect a decision from them anytime soon. Uh, and look, I don't think that the Big 12 is going to ever kind of be in a position where they're like, we don't want Oregon. Right? I, I think that Oregon and Washington are powerful enough brands that they can feel uh, open enough to the idea that even though the Big 12 will probably be a secondary type uh, tier relative to the Big 10 and SEC, they're always going to have an invitation open for Oregon and Washington. Or Oregon and Washington aren't going to suddenly follow the conference to Isaiah or to the Mountain West. So I, I think that both of them are going to take their time. They're going to search out their options. I mean, look, we're in, a, we're in an era where I think geography is dead. Maybe they look at the, uh, at the future of the ACC. Maybe they look at the future of the SEC and see if they can get invites. I think, I think that they are going to keep their options open as long as possible, whereas I, I think that the four other schools that are a little bit closer to the Big 12's geographical footprint 
are going to try to move pretty quickly because those four schools are by no means guaranteed uh, a spot in this new world. So let's just say, for example, you're right, uh, the four schools go to the Big 12, and then that leaves Washington and Oregon kind of in that state of being in limbo in the Pac-12, along with the four remaining schools, Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, and Washington State. If you've got six, you, you have to build yourself back up. And then you start to say to yourself, could that be the beginning of the end of the Mountain West Conference? Could uh, the Pac-12 pick the schools of their choosing to try to get back up to a workable level, and then the Mountain West might end up dissolving in a similar state like we saw Conference USA was in a year ago? I think it's certainly a risk, right? I mean, we've got, there's obviously a lot of powerful brands in the Mountain West. Certainly you think that Boise State would be the first call whenever the Pac-12 decides that they want to expand, but there will be plenty of others, right? I mean, San Diego State has built itself into a strong football brand. Fresno State as well. Uh, you know, Colorado State, I think, is one of the most undervalued brands on the board, and they made a great hire in Jay Norvell, who I think is only going to help them out. So I, I do think that the Mountain West is probably going to be poached uh, by the Pac-12 in one form or another. Uh, I think that what's going to be interesting, right, because uh, we talked about this earlier, I mean, there's there's uh, very few conferences that fully fold, right? I mean, realistically, what happens with a lot of them is they turn into something else. I mean, even the West, you know, of course, still existed without football for a long time. So I, I think that, you know, it probably will just end up being another reshuffling, right? It'll be some combination of the Mountain West schools teaming up with some level of uh, Pac-12 schools, and we'll see, you know, I, I'd imagine that they'd probably try to keep the Pac-12 branding because it's got Power 5 branding, quote-unquote. So, you know, it, it definitely is, I think, going to be a tumultuous time for those West Coast schools. And it's funny, th- sitting here this time last year, uh, I think that the Mountain West and the Pac-12 especially had opportunities to really shore up their positions to be able to withstand maybe a couple of attrition. And now they're in a position where, you know, if they start losing people, then I think that that could be, uh, you know, sort of the end for them in terms of their current stature. So definitely a perilous time, I think, for those conferences out there. And uh, and all of those programs out west, I think, are about to be reshuffled. I agree with you. Shahan Jairaja joining us here on Sports Talk as we continue. Uh, in your opinion, if let's just say Washington and Oregon remain in the Pac-12 and they take four to six schools from the Mountain West to build themselves back up, do you still see that league remaining Power 5? Or do you think that when you lose the Arizona schools, Colorado, Utah, and the California schools and USC and UCLA, it'll drop them down uh, down a notch? So I think that one other thing is that we're going to need to stop thinking of things in the context of Power 5, right? So I think that there's going to be a Power 2. And those two leagues are going to be head and shoulders above everybody else, being the SEC and the Big Ten. Uh, I, I think that, you know, whether it's a consolidation of the, the sort of Pac-12 schools that you mentioned and the Big 12 or whatever else, I, I think that that's going to kind of be the second-tier league potentially. And we'll see what happens with the ACC. I don't really have a good feel for uh, what they're going to do long-term, whether they're going to look and try to expand as well or whether they feel like they can kind of exist as what they are. But I, I think that the Pac-12 ends up a step below that. I don't think that they end up kind of considered even that second-tier conference. I think that this would probably be closer to a third-tier conference. Now, there's some investment opportunities, I think, right? Again, I mentioned Colorado State. That's a program that I really like, and I think uh, could potentially continue to improve itself uh, as there's more investments in that area. And if they were to kind of move up to, a, to a, an expanded Pac-12, I think that the California schools always have a lot of uh, ability there. And 
if Oregon and Washington were to stay, which I, I feel like if it was this scenario, they would probably end up going to this new Big 12. But if they did stay and you are able to keep their rivals in Oregon State and Washington State, I mean, that's not a bad start. Uh, you know, it's definitely better than, I think, any any existing group of five league. But, uh, but again, when you're talking about power, I mean, I think that, I think that you know they're gonna they're gonna have some profile. I think that they in an expanded playoff, which I still think is probably coming. Uh, you know, I think they'd have some bids, but they certainly I think would be well behind this new Big Twelve. Not to mention those top two. Fantastic conversation. I don't even want to get into UTEP yet because it's impossible to speculate since we don't know what's going to happen with the Mountain West, what's going to be left with the Pac-12. It's almost like, let's see how things develop. Then we could try to figure out if Conference USA could benefit or if UTEP could find themselves back with New Mexico and the Mountain West. Yeah, it's going to get real complicated. And I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think uh, I think that obviously UTEP's going to be in a, in a fine position. I think that ending up in this conference USA is, is you know, it's, it's a little bit of a jumble of teams, but, but it's also, I think, a group that's pretty excited to be together. And so, look, if there's going to be some teams kind of at the end of it, or if there is even sort of this next wave of maybe teams moving up from FCS or whatever else, I, I think that it puts Conference USA and, uh, and UTEP also in a pretty good position long term. Good stuff, Shahan. Great to have you back on the show as always, and look forward to the next time we get to chat. Thank you so much for having me. Shahan Jairaja, folks. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Shahan Jairaja and check out his great work at uh, CBSSports.com. Hey, we'll take a timeout. When we come back, Russ Bradbird, longtime uh, UTEP New Mexico State assistant basketball coach, he's going to join us and talk about basketball in the barrio. Looking forward to that conversation right after Charlie One, who's back with this traffic update. Back here on Sports Talk as we continue. 22 past the hour along with Angel Munoz. I'm Steve Kaplowitz. Hey, I need to uh, thank, not only did I thank uh, Jaime earlier uh, about uh, Pinky for the um, the great cap that he sent, but also I need to make sure I give credit where credit is due. His younger brother, uh, Leo Arieta. That cap was meant for Jaime, but the story is the cap was too big for Jaime's head. He wouldn't wear it. So the head's too big, but I'm going to bring it by you. And I uh, brought it over and... I got a little bit of a bigger head than Jaime, so yeah, it fit, uh, fit all right, so I appreciate that. So thank you, Leo. I know you wanted to get that hat for uh, for your brother, but don't worry. I'll make sure it goes to good use, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you guys both for doing that. It was very nice, very unexpected, very nice. It's a great-looking cap. I tweeted it out a little while ago. want to go to the phones right now and welcome back to the show former UTEP, former New Mexico State assistant coach, and also best-selling author. He's Russ Bradbird, here to talk about basketball in the barrio this weekend um, when it gets ready to go uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 9 to 3. Russ is back in, uh, I, I, back in the States. I was going to say he's back in town, but not yet. He's in Chicago, where he's made it back from uh, Ireland, and we'll be here uh, later this week. Coach, always good to have you on the show. How are you doing? Hi, Steve. Hi, Angela. What's, what's going on? You tell us what's going on. How was Ireland? Uh, it was great. It was great. I had. A, I was there on uh, working on a new book idea, which I will talk about some other time. It, but uh, yeah, so I had a wonderful time, and we just we just got back. Although we landed in Chicago, and I thought, let me just look at the news. As soon as the plane landed, I turned my phone on and saw the horrible news about you know it's just uh, just uh, terrible. The Highland Park 
shooting. So I sort of came back with a heavy heart, but we're excited. It's the 30th anniversary of basketball in the barrio. Can you believe it, Steve? I've been doing this is the 30th time Steve Allen and I have done it. We've never missed a year. If, if, you, if, you, if you allow for us doing the camp on Zoom and giving away the T-shirts in, in drive-by, uh, drive-by fashion the last couple of years. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, there's no doubt about it. This camp has withstood the test of time, and it's also uh, been able to survive COVID. Not every camp can say that. That's for sure. So congratulations on that. For people that don't know basketball in the patio, take me back to actually how this entire camp started in the first place back in 1992, Russ. Well, I was I was between coaching jobs then, but in contact with Steve Yellen all the time. We got the idea to do a camp that was, uh, uh, even though you know the UTEP camp was never that expensive compared to say Arizona or Texas, but it was a little expensive for the kids in in, in Segundo Barrio, and uh, and and I had seen what what Rocky Galarza had done in, in South El Paso. The old boxing trainer was a good friend of mine, and uh, and and we, well, Steve and I got the idea we'll do the camp for cheap. So we started doing it at Bowie High School. Strelzen, Paul Strelzen set us up at Bowie where. Uh, we got the gym for very cheap, and we were charging the kids $20 for three days of camp. And then when, when Rocky died in, in 1997, uh, when Rocky Galarza died in 1997, that's when we decided, you know, Rocky trained kids for free uh, for for many years. He was a boxing trainer, you know, and just whoever walked in off the street, it didn't matter. He just made them feel special. And uh, And we got the idea, well, in order to honor Rocky, we're going to do this for free. But then we thought, if we do it for free, the kids will think I don't have to go back on day two or day. So we charge the dollar. Uh, we charge we charge the dollar for three days, and so the camp has been pretty much you know to sort of honor Rocky Galarza since 1997. Um, and we and and at that age, Steve, they're, they're younger kids. I, wa- I wanted to sort of re- remember Rocky and honor his legacy, but they're younger kids, and you can't teach them weak side defense or you know, the flex offense or something like that. And so we did mostly dribbling drills, but even for that, we started to realize after a couple of years, like they can only do so much basketball. We've only got it. We went to the, we moved to the Armijo center and after Paul Strelzen retired and uh, we moved to the Armijo center and it got to be, uh, it just got to be too much basketball. So we started mixing in educational stuff and music and dance and storytellers and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. And so it's, it's a strange mix and a ver- very unusual camp um, And w- because we only charge a dollar a kid. I tell Steve Yellen, well, we haven't got rich in the financial sense, <laughs> but we've got rich in other ways. So I love that, by the way. So uh, just to make sure I get this right, you were going to charge nothing, but then you were worried that if you charged, if you made it a free camp, kids would not come back for like the, the second or the third day? I mean, wouldn't you figure that if a kid got it for free, they would want to take advantage of all three days? Well, I don't know. I, I, think, we, I think we actually did that one year while we, after Rocky died. We did it for free, and we noticed that there is something about mom giving the kid the dollars and, and the kid putting that dollar across the way where he feels like he's – like we made the mistake early on in the camp of giving the kids their basketball and book and T-shirt, you know, the first day – Every kid gets a, a bilingual children's book and a, a jumper. We, we made the mistake of giving them their stuff the first day, yeah. and some of the kids some of the kids didn't come back the second day because. So we, we said now we have to use carrot and stick kind of stuff. So we, yeah, we tell them on the last day they're going to get their book and their jump rope and their harmonica and 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 you've got to come back the last day so you can, you know so you, and you and we all let, we let them take home their basketball on the last day. 
And part of it, Steve, is the challenge. You know, at the Armijo, you've been to the Armijo Center. It's only it's one single court, and we've got 100 kids with 100 basketballs. So now you can't play a game. There's just not enough court space. You, you, don't, you, don't, want, you don't want 10 kids playing basketball and 90 kids in the stands and watching. So it takes, it takes tremendous coordination. But we've got it. You know, Steve and I have it pretty much. It's a, it's a pretty well-oiled machine at this point. And by the way, I should say that part of the reason we're able to do all this for a dollar is because of household furniture, mm-hmm. who, who, who's really ponied up the ponied up the money for the camp. Mike Jaffe and his son Alex, that was such a great baseball player in town. So, so it, we've got now, but yet the camp changes a little bit every year. It's, it's like a living, breathing organism, and we're always trying to tweak it and improve it, and you know, it changes from year to year very slightly. And um, I think Rocky would be proud of us. Um, I know he would be proud of you, especially since uh, this camp has expanded to not just be all about basketball. By the way, I can't even imagine that you did a three-day basketball camp originally for 20 bucks and spent the majority of it focusing on dribbling. It'd be pretty impressive if kids showed up for three, for like seven, eight hours a day, and really their main focus was dribbling the entire time. Well, as you might remember, see, I was a little bit of a nut about practicing my dribbling myself. And in and, and, and the first uh, first years of the camp at Bowie, it's, it's a slightly bigger gymnasium. So we had a little bit more room to shoot layups and, and that kind of thing and have contests. And But we've gotten we, we've a lot of contests and relay races and, and that kind of thing. But now we, we've gotten where we try to do nothing. At that age, I have a funny theory that I think when the kids are six, seven, eight, nine, ten, mm-hmm. they should not be competing. They should just be doing it for fun. And, yep. and I actually, I actually encourage parents and tell them. Uh, now, not my my kid, of course, doesn't even play basketball, but I, I tell I tell parents that until your kid's about fifteen, you should. The only thing you should say to him when he gets or her when when she gets home from practice or or the game or is it, did you have fun? You know, because if it's not fun, they they wind up getting burned out. And I've seen this time and time again in El Paso, where, where some kid would be a hot shot at the Don Haskins camp, and as as a fifth grader, and then quit the team by the time he's in junior high school. He's just tired of it. And so you you have to you have to keep kids fresh and keep keep kids and, and make it you know make it fun for the kids, even if it's not basketball. I think it's true for anything. If the kids are going to buy in and, and get hooked on it. It's got to be fun. If it's, if it's drudgery, you're just going to drive them away. I agree with that, and that's why uh, it makes a lot of sense uh, why you would just do that. Although it's sad to think about, uh, Russ, just how travel ball has exploded for all sports and all age groups and how much money families invest every year into serious travel ball for kids that are the same ages that are going to be competing in, uh, or, or are going to a uh, basketball in the body of this weekend. Yeah, I, I think it's, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the tra- traveling teens. I think it's a bad idea to start taking teenagers that are, are younger to Las Vegas. And, you know, it's a, El Paso is a town of 750,000. You've got Albuquerque and Phoenix, Phoenix close by. If you, if you, if you actually need to have a, you know, a, a, a tournament. I, I, I don't. For the life of me, I don't. I think it's a. I think it's a bad idea. And uh, you know, just the, the whatever. It's just fake exposure. I don't think it's really going to happen. And I, I think it's just sort of preying on on the. the uh, I don't know. I just. I don't think that should be the purpose of sports is getting exposure for college scholarships and that kind of thing. I think we should be teaching the kids teamwork and discipline and. And then I, 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 you know, so I, I, I'm very much, and the NCAA is actually part of it. It's yep. where they, they're, everyone's transferring all over the place now. And I just wonder, I worry about what we're teaching kids. 
Uh, even for basketball in the barrio, sometimes, Steve, uh, some of the Columbus say, hey, can I help coach? I say, yeah, but you've got to be there all three. Oh, I can't come on Sunday. Well, it doesn't. we want the stability of these kids' lives. We don't want them, uh, you know, jumping from hotel to hotel and going to look. Taking children to Las Vegas seems like a really bad idea to me. Coach Russ Bradbird with us right now here on Sports Talk as we continue. Bottom of the hour, basketball in the body are uh, going to be happening at the Armijo Center uh, this uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 9 to 3, all three days. The cost is just a dollar. By the way, is there a place people could register, or do they just need to show up on Friday? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, because, you see, the Armijo has been closed. The Armijo Center at 707 South 7th Street, but the Armijo Center has been you know, closed. Some of the parks never reopened after COVID, and I think Armijo has struggled. So I think it's reopening. So we're happy that El Paso Parks and Rec has always been uh, good with us, and, and we're under the umbrella of the El Paso Community Foundation. But I think if if, if, if you've got a kid and he's not registered yet, get your get your it's six to ten year olds. Uh, uh, which reminds me, Steve, don't you have a six to ten year old? Uh, he's on the latter uh, part. He just turned ten, and yes, the plan is to make sure he's attending basketball in the body of those days. Yeah, well, don't start asking me for a freebie. He's got to bring his dollar. Trust me, he'll be um, proud to bring you his dollar. Probably come out of his own right. pocket too. Kid earned enough money over the last few months where he can he can afford a buck and give that to you. Um, I've been on the website and I haven't seen the registration. That's why I'm wondering where do you sign up, Russ? Well, it, it, I was going to say, if, if, if you're not, I think Steve, what Steve Yellen has been doing diligently has been taking taking the registration slips around South El Paso. Got it. But if you're not in, if you're not in South El Paso, I would say just get your your son or daughter to camp by eight thirty. It starts at nine, but you get them there by eight thirty, and, and and I'm pretty sure you'll get a get a spot for your kid. And we do I do, do need to bug Steve and say we got to get the. Uh, the registration form up on the website. We, we 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 talked about that a couple of days ago, and I don't think it's I don't think it's happened yet. If people Google, if you go to basketballinthebarrio.org, yep. I think I think it yes. is. Yes, I think you can you can even learn more. About, and of course, Sean Harrington, the gun, the the, uh, the now Chicago icon, the the gun violence survivor who played for the Aggies, he'll he'll be there talking to the kids about. Uh, working hard. It's, it's very dramatic, of course. And then a lady named Nat, Natalie Gutierrez, is, uh, she's the, every year we get someone from Peace Players International. It's this group that gets kids from uh, troubled neighborhoods all over the world to play basketball together. So it's, it's our 10th year of flying in somebody from Peace Players. Well, this year it's Natalie Gutierrez from uh, Los Angeles Peace Players. Nice. I like that. Hey, by the way, uh, and that's another question I have for you. Uh, you mentioned how this camp has expanded from just basketball to so many other things. You now have dance, you have uh, books and reading and culture and art, uh, music. You've turned it into almost a huge celebration of, uh, I don't want to say basketball is is just kind of part of it, but in a way it really is. I think that's right. I think if somebody wanted their dollar back because it's only one-third basketball, I think that's, I think they could probably sue us to get to get their dollar back, but it just and Steve, I should also go. I always try to mention this when I do interviews, is to say that I, you know, there's people who have dedicated their lives to helping people in Segundo, you know, the Lafay Health Clinic and the teachers at at AOE School and Guillen Middle School and Bowie High School. So there's people, you know, like Paul Strells and the the longtime principal at, at at Bowie who's no longer with us, but. Those people have dedicated their lives to helping kids, and Steve Allen and I do it three days a year. So I don't like to I don't like to 
act like I'm some sort of expert on, on uh, or, or David Romo, the great historian who, who's 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 uh, written so much about the, the history of the area. I don't like to act like Steve and I are sort of, you know, saving Segundo Barrio or that, uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot of people doing a lot more than us. And so we just I think we're just a small asterisk in the in Segundo life. But it is a unique and unusual camp. And we are. We, you know, and, and we are proud of it, but uh, it is, it's maybe a third basketball and the rest is, you know, you know, we get the art teacher, uh, Sochi Rodriguez to come in and she'll do some sort of, the last couple of years, she's had the kids dribbling through the paint onto a giant canvas. <laughs> and so, and so there, there's, you know, there's all, all kinds of things going on at basketball in the barrio and it's not just, it's not just basketball. Uh, that's the most important thing. And, uh, I can imagine also you must have a tremendous amount of volunteer coaches and helpers that lend uh, their time uh, those three days to make it uh, the kind of camp that it is, uh, especially after all these 30 years. That's right. And, and, you know, we always talk about Steve yelling this and Russ that. And, but the, the truth is <clears throat> just, just virtually every decision we've made about basketball in the barrio for the last 20 years we run it through Tracy Yellen, who of course played college basketball herself, and uh, and so between Steve and Tracy and myself, and there's a there's a long list of coaches who have done it done it for a long time that we can count on. This year, the camp photographer is Herman Delgado, who was one of Rocky Galarza's boxers, and we've got uh, Laura Intebi is our, our has been our jump rope coach for many years. Uh, Elena Hernandez has been as a camper, then as a junior counselor, then as a counselor. Then as a dancer, and now as she's the uh, she's the artistic director that books all the all the music and art and uh, dance acts. Uh, she went to Bowie High School herself, and of course New Mexico State, go Aggies. Uh, so we, we we have there's people with long long histories of of, of helping out. That uh, so it's not it's not it's not a two man team of Steve Yellen and I. But uh, we seem to get our, our, our face on the on the camera more often. You've got an artistic director who actually attended the camp. Yes, well, part part of it for me, Steve, like 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 any coach, I'm a bit of a control freak. Where I thought I've got to change the toilet paper myself, and I've got to sweep the gym myself, and I'll pump up this basketball. And it's taken me years and years to sort of let go a little bit and start and, and delegate and delegate. So. I, now I, you know, I started to realize I don't know who the folklorico dancers are anymore, and I don't know that mariachi is long gone, and that Norteño trio is long gone, and you know who are the best storytellers in town, and so I needed someone with 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 roots in the neighborhood in, in Segundo. We're, like we we buy our we buy our t-shirts we buy our t-shirts from a neighborhood, you know, from a Segundo barrio t-shirts. So, you know, we we try to you know buy food and. And that kind of thing from all Segundo people, but I needed someone with sort of boots on the ground, and so uh, Elena has been handling the, the booking of the artistic acts and the entertainment for the kids now for a few years. And you know, Steve, one of the things that Steve and I are desperate to do is that if, if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, or uh, when I, at some point I won't be able to do it any after thirty years, maybe we'll shoot for forty. We'll have a big we'll have a big celebration after fifty years of the camp. How about that? But but I, I, we want the camp to continue, that we, and we want to keep Rocky's name alive. You know, there's a beautiful mural at the camp that uh, that we had done that the El Paso City Council had to approve, and there's a beautiful mural tribute to Rocky. And I, I wanted to, you know, when he died, the, the headline was El Paso bar owner dies. You know, that kind of thing. And I just I didn't want that to be his legacy. I thought 
bar owner, the guy who did dedicated his life to children. The headline of his the headline when he dies is bar owner dies. Uh, I just thought, you know, I wanted, I just felt like he had done so much. You know, he was Nolan Richardson's inspiration. Yep. Nolan used to follow him around as, as a child because Rocky was such a, a great athlete. And, 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 and behind all of these guys is Father Rom, who I never met, but Father Rom, the man who rode around on a bicycle and got, got, uh, troubled youth in, in Segundo Barrio to p- play sports and do boxing well before it became something that anyone else was thinking about to, to, keep uh keep kids out of trouble father rom was doing it i wish i could have met him did rocky attend the first few years of basketball in the body before he passed you know i think he came he came by buoy a couple to- he came by buoy a couple times and i think he was very i think he was very moved by it and in fact so was nolan when, when nolan came the first time that was how i was sort of able to convince nolan to let me write his biographies Nolan came by a few times, and the first time Nolan came by, I remember, uh-oh, these, these big-time coaches, he's going to want to get paid because all these guys get huge speaking fees when they go around. And, and Nolan, I said, Nolan, we don't, none of us, we're all doing it as volunteers. He said, oh, I don't want any money. And he just completely, the kids were riveted, you know, just like he's the most they, – they, of course, they never didn't remember ever seeing him coach or anything, but, but uh, uh, he said, you know, Nolan is the best public speaker that's ever lived, in, in my view, and he just had the kids just – on the edge of their seats, and I thought somebody ought to be writing the book, this guy's story. You know, because he, he he's talking to the kids in Spanish, going back and forth from Spanish to English, and I thought he, this is a really remarkable guy. And I, I actually felt the same way with you know when 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 Nolan got fired, the story was you know when Nolan wound up getting fired at Arkansas. I thought this is going to be his legacy that that you know that uh, you know that that he had a bad press conference and they fired him, and his, his life is a lot more than that. So. Uh, Nolan has been an active part of the camp on and off now for quite some time. Very nice. All right, listen, Russ, I'm excited about this weekend. I think it's going to be terrific. Uh, looking forward to uh, seeing everything firsthand and, and being a part of it. That's what it's all about is getting an opportunity to uh, just see all of what you and uh, everybody out there are able to do for uh, all the campers. It's, it's such a good time. Great. And if, again, if parents want to get there, just if you get there, I'd say if you get there by 830 at the latest, we'll have a, we'll, we'd probably have a spot. Have to has to be six to 10 year old girls and boys. OK, looking forward to it. Uh, we'll see Thanks, in a few you. days. Russ, appreciate the time. And when are you flying into town? I, I get in Thursday afternoon and I've got to go take take some sample T-shirts out to household furniture and. I uh, just rally, rally, get the coaches together for a, a pep talk. I have to go into coach. I only, I'm only in coaching mode three days a year anymore, so I've got to get into coaching mode, get my uh, get, get my head around it, and uh, and and uh, so. But we've been doing it long enough. We've been doing it long enough that it's, it's sort of second nature to me. Like every occasionally, I'll think, oh, I forgot to get the I forgot to get the Gatorade or whatever. But in general, I'm pretty much on automatic pilot. Good. Well, listen, you did a great job this time around. Appreciate everything you guys have done for the last 30 years, and I look forward to a great weekend of uh, fun and excitement for the kids. Thanks, Steve. Basketball in the Barrio, coming up. Check out more information, basketballinthebarrio.org, folks, as we continue. Good job with Russ. All right, we'll come back and uh, wrap up hour number two and get ready for a little uh, Padres minor league talk with Mad Friars. John Conniff going to join us at the top of our 6 o'clock hour uh, right here, 600 ESPN El Paso. Welcome back, everybody. We continue here on Sports Talk along with Angel Munoz. I'm Steve Kaplowitz. Our telephone number to get in is 505-6009. That's 505-6009. Get you right on in. 
and through to the program. Again, would love to hear from you. Anything on your mind, this is the time to do it. And uh, we'd just like to talk, uh, whether it's conference realignment, uh, basketball on the barrio, um, our first uh, start of the show with Greg Foster. So many great interviews on the program today. And Adrian Broadus has been out uh, coming back uh, with us. He'll join us uh, again on the show um, tomorrow. So we'll look forward to having Adrian back with us tomorrow. And in the meantime, I look forward to all of you uh, here on the show today as we continue and wrap up our number two. And we'll talk a little Padres with John from Mad Friars coming up here in our final hour. Before we do that, though, I want to tell you a little story about Angie. Angie was ready for a smaller home. You know, in today's business of uh, of really buying and selling homes, some people think that, well, you know, you want your dream home, your perfect home. Some people are trying to downsize. That's what Angie was trying to do. And you know what? She enlisted the help of Brian Birds and his team to sell her larger house. And that's what happened. Brian's marketing strategies put her home in front of the most buyers possible. And that home sold for $195,000 in just two weeks. Now Angie can focus on finding her ideal home. Now, remember, if you want top dollar, you need to find that agent who can create an auction-like effect with buyers competing for your home and driving up the price. So Brian Birds does. The Brian Birds home selling team powered by EXP Realty. In fact, here's why. He's gathering buyers as we speak to buy your home right away because he's already started marketing your home. You know, most agents don't start that until after you sign the listing agreement. But Brian starts his marketing process even before he meets his clients. So call the official real estate agent of UTEP and El Paso Locomotive FC. The only agent I need if I was going to sell my home, he's Brian Birds. Online at brianbirds.com. Nine in front of six right now as we continue here on Sports Talk. And, uh, you know, we've uh, spent so much time today focusing on our guests. We really haven't had a chance to talk about some of the bigger stories that have made headlines. Uh, we got Wimbledon going on right now as we speak. There's been some terrific matches, especially um, watching the Joker come back from two down to survive and rally to go into the semifinals, which he's going to do. And that was big. If anybody's been watching Wimbledon and you want to talk a little tennis, love to hear from you. Also, a story about Tiger Woods finishing tied for 39th um, out there in Ireland, uh, which most people have called a a star-studded event and a a little tune-up before the Open Championship gets going next week. Well, Here's, uh, you know, Tiger shot a, a 77 on Monday and then closed with a 2-over 74 to finish tied for 39th. But, you know, I think the fans love Tiger as he walked off the final uh, green. And now we'll see how he holds up at the 150th Open Championship out there at St. Andrews, which is going to be starting a week uh, from Thursday. So a week from Thursday, and it's only Tiger's third official event since he suffered that serious uh, leg injury in the car wreck outside uh, Los Angeles back in February of last year. So you might remember his start at the Masters, 
Finished 47th. That was just a win to get back on the course and play. Then struggled at the PGA Championship the last couple rounds. Had a withdraw after the third round. Skipped the U.S. Open last month uh, because of his surgically repaired leg. But again, was back out there this time around in Ireland playing and getting ready. And the fact that uh, Tiger was healthy enough to, to play the two rounds and get by is good. Look, I want to see Tiger at St. Andrews. Nobody is expecting Tiger to win. Heck, most probably aren't even expecting him to make the cut. But if he can make some big shots, get the crowd going again, we've talked about this over and over, Tiger Woods is great for golf. And right now, I feel like just about everybody that's watching golf is rooting for Tiger. You know, it wasn't like that in the old days. Some people were rooting against him. And then after what happened with him and his personal life going downhill and his health going downhill, a lot of people thought that Tiger would would never play golf again and was just spiraling out of control, which was the case. And now he is that classic story, the underdog story, where most uh, golf fans and sports fans realize that you know Tiger's in a spot now he's never been in his career before. A guy that you know people are just wanting to see, and if they can watch him turn back the clock a little bit, makes everybody happy. And he's good for golf because when Tiger's playing and playing well, more people watch golf. It's as simple as that. All right, two hours in the books. When we come back, we'll get you ready for our third and final hour. John Conniff, Mad Friars. Great to have you with us. Along with Angel Munoz, I'm Steve Kaplowitz. Sports Talk continues right here on 600. It's ESPN El Paso. Welcome back. Final hour of Sports Talk underway. He's Angel Munoz. I'm Steve Kaplowitz. Adrian Broadus is back tomorrow. Appreciate Angel filling in. Appreciate Jason Craig filling in as well. And uh, looking forward to spending the last 60 minutes with you. Looking forward to our next guest, man. It's, it's been since April. We've had a chance to talk a little uh, Padres minor league baseball with John Conniff from uh, Mad Friars and online at uh, madfriars.com. And uh, John joins us now as uh, he'll be in El Paso next week. Excited to hear that news. In the meantime, and for all of your uh, Padre minor league talk for any affiliate, just go to madfriars.com and that the team of John, David, uh, Jay, and uh, Mark Wilkins. Uh, along with Karen, uh, Kevin Charity. They do a great job keeping you up to speed with everything happening. And also should mention uh, Ben Davey. Man, John, the, the group just keeps on growing out of Mad Friars. Congratulations on uh, doing such a great job with that. Hey, congratulations. I mean, I think that's about the first time I've ever been on the radio and a host like nailed all five of the guys uh, of us. So uh, that's impressive. I mean, I always like coming on here with you guys because I'm, we're all really appreciative that you guys read our stuff and, uh, Makes us feel like we're not just writing uh, things out there that no one's reading. So uh, thank you very much. Hey, don't worry. I feel the same way about our station website uh, and, and all the <laughs> stuff we write about. So, yeah, welcome to the club, John. That's what it's all about. Uh, <laughs> but, man, it has been such an interesting year, I think, for, for yes, Padres uh, you know, farm clubs and, and development. And, and, and not only that, I can't remember the last time that the Big League Club has done this well into the month of July. It's, it's been a while, John. It's been a while, but man, I think people in uh, in San Diego are starting to, to go down a, a rabbit hole today after dropping the second one to the Mariners. I think they've lost nine out of eleven, and could have been worse. They hadn't made that comeback against the Dodgers. So, uh, you know, but it's it's a cliche because baseball's been around for so long, and it's 162 games. There's going to be ups and downs. Yep. So, uh, the Chihuahuas though are a really interesting team this year, though. <laughs> 
I want to talk about them. And by the way, how ironic is it that today Andres Munoz comes in, the former flamethrower for the Padres who went through Tommy John surgery after being acquired by Seattle, and now he looks like he's pretty much gotten his stuff back and probably uh, a future uh, shutdown closer uh, for Seattle. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a pretty bitter trade for for San Diego with the one they made for Seattle, especially because that's when also you saw Ty France go on that deal. But a lot of that had to do with, you know, when San Diego signed Derek Hosmer to that big contract, you know, as much as like, uh, you know, Edwin, Edwin loved, you know, France a lot. He was a third baseman, first baseman, and you couldn't move Hosmer with that deal. So that kind of, you know, forced him to move him and also Josh Naylor and, you can even argue maybe even somewhat Fran Mill Reyes. And so, I mean, part of me kind of thinks like if they'd never signed Hosmer, I mean, you could have seen a nice platoon, first base, left field, DH platoon with Hosmer and Naylor in there. And it kind of would have changed, I think, a little bit of the narrative on how well the Padres uh, develop players. I mean, it just gets, it, it's a fascinating uh, what if to think about. It is. It is. And, I, of course, I always wonder about France being that super utility guy. He could have played some second base. The Padres mm-hmm. have needed that. Obviously, we've seen that, not to mention the DH that's now been incorporated throughout baseball. But we right. didn't know when, when uh, France was part of that trade that we would see a uh, league-wide DH. Maybe that was the thought process, but nobody nobody could see into the future and see that. And also, nobody knew how well France's skills, despite uh, showcasing them in El Paso, would translate long-term into the big leagues because he was never thought of as that can't-miss prospect like so many others. The thing about Ty France I thought was interesting was I remember seeing him in Fort Wayne, and he still kind of looked like a fullback. And he had a, a batting average of you know, 240, and he was always getting hit by pitches, so his on-base was 400, but his slugging was about 300. And he, I saw him later that year, like Elsinore, where he got moved up, and he was okay. And then he lost about, you know, 20 pounds, and suddenly this guy could play. He could get the inside pitch. He could get the hit with power. And then that year that he put together in El Paso where he hit 399, I think I came out there. I think I came out there for a four-game series. I saw Ty play all four games. He may have swung and missed once. I mean, like he fouled off some pitches, but he was just so locked in. And, yeah, he's a good player. And guys like that are tough because a lot of their value is how much better they get when they're in the system compared to when they were, were drafted. You know, he got the maximum for a guy after 10 rounds, I think about around 125,000. But for the first couple of years, he was always just an afterthought. And uh, it's kind of too bad. And he also was a great guy. I love talking to Ty France. Really good person, too. John Conniff with us, uh, Mad Friars, as we talk a little of Padres minor league baseball, and we talk uh, all levels, but we'll start with the Chihuahuas, especially as of late. Here we go. They've won four in a row. Oklahoma City's lost mm-hmm. four in a row, so the the the, the uh, Chihuahuas have made up uh, four games, and they're just two back starting uh, play tomorrow, since today was the off day after the Fourth uh, of July game. Uh, things are going right for this team, and 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 a lot of things are happening. Thanks to uh, uh, some really a couple of the uh, youngsters, uh, specifically if you really think about it, um, you gotta love what uh, you know. We've seen from uh, Eggy Rosario; he's been terrific, right. and 
he's not alone because they've also got a a 23-year-old outfielder who's getting it done in a big way. And uh, I'm excited about uh, Esteori Ruiz and what he's been able to do. So, you know, those are guys that weren't necessarily thought to be big-time producers when the season started, and uh, they've both been terrific uh, so far. Well, Eggy yeah, was always a, a kind of a top-20 guy. He had a lot of talent. He had a good year at San Antonio last year, but the guy who really kind of rose off the charts has been Ruiz. I mean, I saw Ruiz in Fort Wayne and Lake Elsinore, and that's when, you know, it's, he had been an outfielder when they signed, and they tried to bring him into the infield, and it never really clicked. And then on top of that, you know, he was a guy who made really good contact in the zone but he chased too much out of it. And so at the end of last year, you know, the hitting coach in San Antonio, Royal Padron, and the manager, Philip Wellman, really made an emphasis on working with him on not swinging at bad pitches. And, you know, we, we talk about that with so many players, and maybe one out of 20 or 30, it really clicks. And that's where he really buys into that now. And he carried it over into uh, the winter, and then he came back. And his walk rate's been doubled. His strikeout rate's gone down. He's about six feet, 175. And then on top of that, which is interesting, is, you know, he was in left field last year, and he wasn't that good. I mean, and now he plays center. He can play all three positions. And he's turned into a very good outfielder. When I talked to him, he said he just finally got comfortable with balls in the air and routes that had kind of gone away because he had you know, worked so hard to be in the infield and it just wasn't taking. And now his athleticism takes over. And, you know, this guy is probably one of the two or three best athletes in the system. So, I mean, I think in nearly 20 years of doing this, you know, Ruiz has improved as much as anybody that I've ever seen. And he deserves just a lot of credit because, you know, he was not on any of our individual top 30s. So, Big fan of what he's been able to do. I love it when guys fly under the radar and they suddenly put themselves into that kind of a conversation. And and let's be honest, oh, yeah. you know the reason why the Chihuahuas are two back, it's not because of their pitching, John. It's because of the bats. The bats are hitting the ball like crazy. The starting pitching has not been particularly good outside of maybe Jesse Schultons this year. Uh, a lot of the regular guys have struggled, but the bullpen has pitched well. And I guess that's the key because when the the Chihuahuas get a lead. A lot of the times, the bullpen can can at least hold that lead and, and give them an opportunity to to pull these games out. Well, you know the interesting thing is when I go on the radio in San Diego, the guys there always tend to ask me, he "Goes well, how real are the numbers in El Paso?" Because they tend to think anybody can hit hit there, and you know they have a good hitting team. It is a good hitting park, but I think what kind of shocks them is that when you point out that you know. Albuquerque, Las Vegas, and Reno are much better hitters' parks. So some of the hitting you kind of got to take with a – you got to kind of look a little deeper. Like I, just with Ruiz, what we're talking about, you see he's making much better swing decisions. So it doesn't really matter. He was doing the same thing in San Antonio, which is not a good place to hit. Yeah. And so that, to me, shows it's kind of real. And some of the guys, like I think Ryan Weathers, has had – just a little bit of trouble kind of figuring out what type of pitcher he is, whether he's more of a two-seam fastball slider guy or he's going to try to throw up in the zone. In my opinion, you know, he's much better when he does that and only occasionally goes up. That's, I think, when he gets hurt. You know, Reese Kinnear is, 
You know, I think with Reese, it all just depends how much separation he has between his fastball and his changeup. And I think he gets in trouble when he tries throwing this changeup a little too too hard. But I'm looking forward to coming out there and uh, already guiding in anticipation of uh, coming out and gorging on some food in El Paso. So I think I'll have a little bit better understanding of what's going on there when I'm out there for about four days. John, people forget Ryan Weathers is only 22 years of age. He won't turn 23 uh, until right. mid-December. So here's a guy that is still very young, was called up to the big leagues uh, at, at an extremely uh, young age, and ultimately, you know, just needs to, to harness his, you know, as you said, his stuff, get comfortable at the AAA level, and then watch it translate to the big leagues. Something Mackenzie Gore had a lot of trouble doing a year ago. Well, you know, I think that's going to be a really interesting story I think in about a year or two, when people start looking about how the pandemic affected minor league players and when certain guys went to like this alternate site where they're kind of playing glorified spring training games. And some people looked maybe a little better than they were. And I think Weathers was kind of that, that case. And, you know, this, you got to remember, this is a guy who was pitching in Fort Wayne and had a, had a good year, not a great one, and then went to the alternate site and they put him in the big leagues. Uh, toward the end of the year. And last year he pitched most of the time, and he wasn't really quite prepped. And I think when you talk to a lot of development guys, they make a really good point. I mean, there's different levels in the minor leagues for a reason. And I think a little bit with Weathers and even to some extent C.J. Abrams, that those guys have been kind of rushed. Now, other guys with an alternate site, it helped a lot. It made it really helped Robert Hassel. I'm sure we'll talk about who's at high A Fort Wayne turned into the player he is by learning how to go the opposite way. And, and yeah. some other guys did too. No, I'm with you on that one. Um, I, I mentioned bullpen help earlier. Um, I know that, you know, he's not a, a youngster, all things considered. He's 26, but uh, Jose Castillo has been terrific this year in, in the bullpen for El Paso. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you're with us. There's a lot of other people in San Diego that are wondering why Castillo's not up? I mean, uh, AJ Preller doesn't call me up yet with uh, personnel recommendations, but uh, a six-six lefty with a downhill plane on a on a fastball is someone I think the Padres could use. So I would expect to see Castillo up sometime in the near future. I mean, I think he's he's looked really good, and it's a really good story of him coming back from the injuries that he that he's had. What do we make of uh, Danielson Lamette and uh, ultimately how he is trying to uh, now reinvent himself in the bullpen? When I saw Lamette in San Antonio, he had just come down. I mean, the thing I, I guess I noticed with him is, you know, his velocity is is there. And when you see it on the gun, but I think what I haven't seen on television and in person is I haven't seen the same bite on that slider. And so he was throwing so many sliders when he was good. You know, I mean, I'm not a doctor and I, I don't know if he should have got the surgery or not. Then Nelson didn't think he should probably his best chance is to come back as a, as a relief pitcher. But I just thought there's right now, there's some better options for the Padres, you know, in, in the bullpen, another guy in San Antonio, Michelle Baez, I think is a, a pretty good option for them too, along with uh, Castillo, who you just mentioned. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's sad how uh, Lamed a few years ago was considered to be the next great pitcher, uh, starting pitcher for the Padres, oh, yeah. but just couldn't stay healthy for long periods of time. And everybody thought that he was a Tommy John surgery waiting to happen. And now they're uh, looking to try to find uh, a different role for him. It's 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 a crazy story because it goes to show you that no matter how good you might be at one point in time, you never know from one minute to the next what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean... You don't know. I mean, there's been some speculation that maybe he threw too many sliders and what its effect on his arm is, but I, yeah, I don't know. I do think it's sad because I remember seeing him in El Paso right before he got called up, and he looked really good. So, uh, you know, hopefully he can kind of turn things around and, uh, and you know, be a force in the, in the bullpen because when the slider and fastball combination are on, he's really tough to hit. One other person I want to touch on before we go to break, and that's uh, Robinson Cano. Had two home runs yesterday. Mm. Now he's batting three thirty three, starting to get comfortable again, getting at bats every single game. Look, I saw what Nomar Mazar was able to do with his career, and it's translated over to San Diego ever since he got hot here in El Paso. And you just wonder for Robinson Cano, is it a matter of reps before you start to see that ability come back? And whether it's in San Diego or another Major League Baseball clubhouse, he gets an opportunity to, to come back to the big leagues. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he had some trouble with the Mets and the Padres, and I think people might look at that more. And he's going to, I think with El Paso, you're going to run into the same problem that, you know, like, like someone who's a star in Colorado does when they go up to the Hall of Fame. Someone's really going to have to kind of stick their neck out. And when you're looking at a, a what, 40-year-old second baseman, and, you know, I don't know. I think there's better people to ask that question than me. I, I don't think it'll happen in San Diego. Uh, there's just too many too many people at the position that he, he fills in best at to really be, a I think, a viable option going forward. But, you know, as just as a baseball fan, I mean, God, that's a beautiful swing, and that's fun to watch, and I'm looking forward to seeing Robinson run him out there too in, in El Paso. I'll say this. He's been great with the fans, terrific, actually, with the fans, and he's enjoying himself here. And a lot of guys with the kind of career and pedigree they've had, he's had will come in here with an ego, and uh, it'll show on the field, but not him. And that's, it's great to see that Cano's been humbled by what's happened to him personally and professionally over the last couple of years, and uh, El Pasoans are having a chance to enjoy him. Yeah, there's been nothing but positive things were said about him when he was with the Padres and with the Mets. And so I have read some of the articles that people have said. I think I've spoke with Tim Haggerty uh, once or twice. And, yeah, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, in a way, you kind of think of, you know, maybe we have friends who still play adult league baseball and go out there just because they love the game. And, you know, if they gave you saw $39 million on a contract left over, you could tell a wife, like, hey, I'm going to go out and play because it's what I like to do. And she said, hey, that's fine. <laughs> 100%. More with John Conniff, Mad Friars, as Sports Talk continues here on 600 TSPN El Paso. 24 past the hour as we continue here on Sports Talk with John Conniff from MadFriars.com. Talking uh, all things Padres uh, minor leagues here. And uh, John going to be making his trip back to El Paso next week. So excited to see him back. And hopefully we'll get him back in our Lubingo studios. So we spent the whole first segment talking about the Chihuahuas. Let's talk now about the rest of the system. And we'll start for us with the San Antonio Missions. That's the AA affiliate of the Padres. Not a ton of of uh, top prospects on that roster. In fact, when you go down the list, John, would you say that somebody like Jorge Onya, um, along with um, you know 
I don't even know who else is would, would be in that list. Maybe Tierso or Nellis is probably some of the better prospects uh, in that system. I like Corey Howell. He's on the, the IL right now. He came over in the trade where they sent Caratini to Milwaukee. He can play second and three outfield positions. They've been playing him in center since uh, Estuary went up to uh, to uh, El Paso. It's you know it's an interesting team. I mean, I like the manager there. I've known him for years, Philip Wellman. They have three of their starters that were released uh, before the year, and they kind of picked them up. Uh, the best one kind of has been this guy uh, Connor Hollis, who, and I mean, this is more of a story of minor league guys as opposed to some super prospect. Connor's 27. He walked on at the University of Houston. They only let him on the field to be a first base coach for the first half of the year when he was there. He you know, worked his way up, played well, didn't get drafted, went to Tampa, then he kind of got caught in a numbers game. And he's one of the better hitters in the Texas League. He's, a, he's been a really good third baseman. He's hitting about, let's see, it's, he's around like 304, 408, 436. Their shortstop was a guy who was released from Pittsburgh, Connor Kaiser. Uh, they got a nice catcher there. I like Chandler Siegel a lot. He's finally learned to hit. He he was a guy who was an extended for a couple years. And always been a tremendous defensive player. Had to learn to do that. You know, pitching, they've been patching together. I think the thing that's the most interesting part about that team is you know, all those guys in that team kind of know that if it doesn't work out there, they're off to like the independent leagues. So they kind of just really play together. The, the best guys who are playing well play. There's no like super prospect that can't be benched or anything like that. And you know, they qualified for the playoffs. And so it's a it's a it's a fun team to watch. Is how much help is going to come to El Paso? How, I mean, Tirso and Nellis is kind of an interesting guy. He's great size, uh, Tijuana, Mexico native. The big problem with Tirso is his batting average is okay this year. And, you know, his on-base isn't bad, but, you know, he's uh, kind of slugging below 400 if I'm looking at the numbers right. Yeah, he's at 389, and he hits the ball really hard. The, the joke with him is he's kind of like the Mexican Eric Cosmer. He hits the ball too much on the ground, but... uh it's a fun team to watch. Reggie Lawson is probably their best starting pitching prospect in Double A, yeah. but unfortunately, walks are still a problem for him. And thus, even though his stats aren't bad on the surface, uh, when when you're walking almost as many guys as you're striking out, uh, John, it, it's tough, especially when he's going to have to make that jump to Triple A. Yeah, you know Reggie's coming back from Tommy John, and after he came back from Tommy John last year, he hurt his shoulder. So, you know, just him going out there and taking the ball on a regular basis and competing is a big victory right now. You know, we saw him at spring training. I was there with David Jay, and we were joking, like, when we just saw Reggie walking by, like, you know, if God decided to build a pitcher, that's kind of what he'd look like. And, um, you know, he's got a lot of talent. I think it's going to take a little bit of time. I don't see Reggie being moved up anytime soon. Maybe next year something could happen. But, you know, right now – He's, he's kind of a, I'd say, a bit of a long shot to kind of reach the ceiling that we saw for him a, a couple years ago. Again, folks, uh, we're, we're talking about the Padres prospects uh, in in Double A. Um, by the way, uh, Wellman is he somebody that you think could easily become a uh, you know a Triple A, maybe eventually a, a big league manager? 
Well, Phillips, I think Phillips 60 or, or 61. And, it, you know, the the best thing about Philip Woman we always joke about was in about, if you talk to Philip in about 10 minutes, everybody kind of knows where they stand. He's very, he's a very honest guy. And all his players really like him a lot. Uh, because one of the better things about that he does is he's, he's, has a rare ability to be very honest and be very constructive at the same time and let guys know what they need to do to get better to get to the big leagues. And double A by for many people is the toughest job. You know, as far as managing at the triple A level, I mean I think triple A is kind of the most unique place of any uh any any of the minor leagues because so many of these guys are just so close. And all you have to do is ask yourself if you, the difference between you and being at a different place was making maybe twenty five or thirty thousand a year, yep. and then making seven hundred thousand, and you didn't, and you felt you weren't in the right place. It might be kind of tough to keep a positive attitude. I mean, guys like Taylor Colway and Matthew Baden, who's up in San Diego now, who kept a positive attitude and kept working and producing so hard, they deserve a lot of credit for. Uh, for what they're doing, because that, that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. John Conniff with us from AdFriars.com as we hit the bottom of the hour here on Sports Talk. Let's talk about, uh, right now, High A, which is the Fort Wayne Tin Caps out there in Midwest right. League and what they're doing. And uh, the big name out of uh, Fort Wayne right now is Robert Hassel third. He's the number one prospect currently on the Padres list. And so far, mm-hmm. he's had a terrific season. He's hit 300. He's got eight home runs, 43 RBIs, 19 stolen bases. He's only 20 years old. And we might see Robert Hassel the third in El Paso before the end of the season. I think it might be a bit of a jump. I think you might see Robert Hassel maybe in the second half of next year. The, the big thing with Hassel, in, you know, compared to what we heard about him out of the draft, was you know, he's a lot faster than we thought. And he's, he's really, he's a pretty good center fielder. He comes, he goes laterally real well, comes in on the ball. He needs to get a little better going back. I think the great stat on him in Fort Wayne is I think he's only swung and missed at 9% of the pitches that he's seen, which leads Midwest Lake. His tremendous bat control. You know, I think they're looking for him to drive the ball a little bit more and pull it earlier in the count. And I interviewed him in spring training and in Fort Wayne. And you know, he had a great story. When he got drafted, remember, he got drafted right in the pandemic. So he went from playing high school ball to they put him in the camp, and he was choking that, you know, he's in right field, and he's looking over to his right, and there's Grisham, and they got Manny in the shift. And he's going, man, things are real. And then he it was interesting that he said for about the first three weeks he was out there, he just got his head kicked in. The game was so fast and so hard, which is normal. But you got to consider when a guy like, Hassel was one of the top 10 picks, one of the best high school players. He's never really failed at anything. So it was a big thing for him really to learn and how to compete. And one thing he took from there really well, that he does really well for a young player, is he hits to the opposite field. And only he hits, but he can drive the ball to the opposite field. So there's a lot to like about, about Robert Hassel. Really nice guy to talk to. You'll enjoy interviewing him as well. He's the only hitter on that team because their combined batting average as a group is uh, just 217 right now, and a lot of guys are just mm-hmm. not producing. But they've got a pitcher, a lefty, 
A 23-year-old named Robert Gasser, who doesn't have the greatest pure stuff, but he has been terrific this year in Fort Wayne and uh, probably one of the better remaining pitching prospects in the organization. Yeah, he and Noel Vela, another guy from Mission, Texas, not Brownsville, as his mom corrected me once, in a, in a very nice way. Our two lefties have been pretty good. Vela might have a little better stuff. Gasser's, Gasser has really good mix of pitches, and when you watch him pitch, he comes from like about a three-quarters arm angle, and a lot of guys at high A just can't pick the ball up off him. And over his last five starts, he's been really good. I think he's allowed – you take out one three-run home run he gave up in the first inning. His last five starts, he's given up one earned run. So he's he's pretty close to coming up to San Antonio, and he's 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 a guy who rose really quick. He went to I think he went to New Mexico. They went back to junior college. They went to University of Houston, and he got a lot better through a lot of weight training and working with his mechanics. Fun guy to talk to. Very much a, a Northern Californian though, not a Texan. Has has that type of personality. We move along to the Lake Elsinore storm of what is now the A-Cal uh, League and the kind of season that, that uh, some of these guys are having. And they do have some hitters on the roster. And um, I, I want to talk about uh, some of those guys uh, for you and, and let you profile them. Because for the most part, you've got your mix of 19-year-olds in terms of outfielder James Wood. Uh, you've got also 20-year-olds, 22-year-olds. And uh, you know, I'm just looking at some of the numbers right now, and uh, let's just take 23-year-old Lucas Dunn for example. He's having a, a great season. He's hitting the ball, hitting it well. Um, I see a guy like Max Ferguson who's only batting 250, but he's got 51 stolen bases as a 22-year-old. That gets your attention. So some interesting names right now in Lake Elsinore that uh, kind of have Padres fans wondering what they can do when they move up some levels. Well, I mean, you hit around the head, and I think Lucas Dunn and Max Ferguson were just moved up very recently to Fort Wayne. Ferguson has uh, is one of the leaders, I think, in all the minor leagues and stolen bases. I think he has like 51 combined now, or 52. The thing on Max was, you know, for the first two months of the season, he had a sub-300 slugging percentage in the cowling. So that had to improve. They made some adjustments. We talked about that in one of our recent dailies. David J. did. He went up and interviewed him. That should be on the site coming up pretty quick. But they made some adjustments where he held his hands. And I think they got him in a, in a more of a crouch now. I'll have to read it when David puts it up there. That have given him a little bit more power. Max can play. He's probably the best position to the second base, shortstop. He can play a little center field. Lucas then had, came up a little earlier. Uh, he's a third baseman first. He can also catch a little bit out of the University of Louisville, eighth-round pick. He's good, but they're interesting guys. But, you know, Steve, the guy you and I both want to talk about is big James Wood. Absolutely. He's got ridiculous size. He's like 6'7", 240. And what's impressed me 255. so... 255. Oh, so he's gained weight. I like that. 255. He, looks got. Like he, can put, he can put on about 20 more pounds. I mean, he looks... He's lean. He's a lean... He's like us. He's a <laughs> he's a 3% body fat. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> James is stud. Well, 
I'll tell you what impresses me the most about him. He doesn't strike out a lot. I've noticed that. Only 25 strikeouts this season, 23 walks, almost an even walk to strikeout rate, 315 batting average. He's got power. He can steal some bases. Uh, You tell me. The Padres really don't have anybody with this kind of makeup in their system right now. No, I mean, we get asked about James Wood a lot, all of us who go on uh, radio shows and podcasts, and, um, you know, I, you try real hard not to get too hyped up, but while I just say this, this might help the audience a little bit. When, after the draft, we interviewed a bunch of guys, and James had a bit of a rough stretch at the IMG Academy right before. Uh, he had six bad weeks, and then he came on. And for a lot of scouts, and he has a real low heartbeat so he looks about the same if he hits a grand slam or he strikes out he gets really excited when his teammates do something but he's always very low-key and that kind of bothers some scouts and when i interviewed keith law you know who's always been a great friend of our site and of your show keith used the phrase he looked disinterested he wasn't sure how well he could hit so in the arizona league and i think last time i was on here we talked about that i think james hit about 370 i don't have the numbers in front of me 470 500 in 100 plate appearances. The one thing we could ding him on was he struck out 31% of the time, but still, that's I'll, I'll take those numbers. Those are fine. And he played center field. Comes out, and as you just pointed out with Elsinore, he's cut his strikeout rate in half. You know, he's for about a couple games ago, he was walking more than he struck out. The power is just unbelievable. He's, the game, one of the games I saw him on television, a couple of... I haven't been out to Elsinore yet, but a lot of our guys, David and Kevin and Ben have all been out there, and Mark Wilkins have been out there. He had a grand slam home run that nearly hit the freeway. And then about the next at bat, it freaked people out, is he had a ground ball to second base. And second base made a move a little bit. And James beat it out going down the line. I mean, and again, we're talking about a six foot seven, 255-pound man so to wrap up, hopefully, a little bit of a long-winded thing, yep. when I'm asked about him, he he, look, he reminds me a little bit of Manny Machado and how easy things come to him. But in terms of prospects for San Diego, San Diego's not had this type of guy with freakish athletic ability and baseball ability since Fernando Tatis. He just looks like the big kid out there who's a lot better than everybody because oh. he is. Let's wrap it up with two other guys I want to ask you about in, in Lake Elsinore. We'll talk about also um, fellow 19-year-old shortstop Jackson Merrill, who is now up yeah. uh, in, in, and doing very well for himself, and uh, 18-year-old pitcher Victor uh, Lizaraga. Let's talk a little bit about Victor. Good pronunciation. Jackson's been hurt. He got hurt earlier in the year. Uh, play, I think, in the field with his wrist. He, had a, he was coming back. He was dominating in his rehab in the ACL, and then he kind of hurt a hamstring. But when he, he's, he's a guy who rose really quick. He was something like 5'8 as a sophomore. Then he had this big growth spurt. He's 6'3", 205, left-hand hitter. Yeah, I mean, he just needs to get back on the field. Victor Lizarraga is 18. Uh, he was a – David has a story on him coming up. Hopefully we'll not screw this up too much or I'll hear from him. He was in California high school, Mexican-American national, went down to Mexico so he'd be eligible to sign early. Signed with an ACL. He's doing really well in the Cal League, especially he's about three and a half years younger than most people. 
he needs just to kind of, you know, he's 18. He needs to kind of refine his pitches a little bit more, go a little deeper into games, but he's having a very good year as well. If you want to learn more about what Mad Friars uh, is all about, you can go online to madfriars.com. In fact, it is the best coverage of Padres prospects and minor league system you're going to find anywhere. Not only that, they do have monthly and yearly subscriptions. So for Five bucks a month, four ninety-five a month. You can get all the information you need on on uh, the Padres prospects, or you can buy uh, the yearly package for forty dollars a year. And uh, when you subscribe there, it's like you're getting four months free. So a nice little bonus versus uh, the monthly subscription. But either way, John, it's a great way for fans to not just support you, but stay up to speed with everything you guys are putting out. Yeah, that's great. Thank you very much for the nice words. And all of us have full-time jobs, so any of the money just goes for hotels, flights, and rental cars and doesn't go for any of my, my dining experiences at L&J Cafe. So uh, thank you. I'm looking forward to coming out and seeing you, Steve. And as always, it's always been a pleasure to be on. And if you go online, you can see all about the players of the month because you just updated that today yes. for the month of June. Yeah, Mark and, Mark and Ben do a good job with that every month. So it's a really... You know, I think what we always try to tell people is it's it's a great way to look at the in two levels. If you're really into the Padres, want to just know the top guys, want to be aware of who's coming up. Guys like we just talked about, Estrella Ruiz and James Wood before the national guys, we got you. And if you're really into like the El Paso Chihuahuas and San Antonio Missions, we cover the minors on a daily basis. We go out to the sites. We have interviews on there with the players, the coaches, and the Padre brass. So, uh I think, it's a, I think it's okay. It's a, it's a lot of fun for us, and we love love doing it. John, we loved having you on the show today. Great job, as always. We'll look forward to seeing you when you get into town next week. Maybe we'll grab some lunch together. And in the meantime, thanks for all the insight and analysis that you guys always provide for us. Hey, well, thank you so much for having me. Take jo- it easy, Steve. You got it. John Conniff, madfriars.com, 18 in front of 7. Come back and wrap it up next on our final countdown here on 600 TSPN El Paso. All right, final countdown here on Sports Talk as we rewind things up. A lot of great guests today. And our thanks to all of those guests for making it possible for us today. Greg Foster joined us in our first hour. Then we had Shahan Jaraja on uh, along with Russ Bradbart in our second hour. And John Conniff from Mad Friars has handled our final hour. Angel Munoz has been hanging out with us for the entire duration of the show. Uh, Angel, I'm curious. I know that when you interned with us, um, we, we used to talk sports with you and we realized, well, wait a minute, sports isn't necessarily your forte, but video is, production is, movies, films. Have you had a chance over the uh, July 4th break or recently to, to, uh, to catch any of uh, the, the new films out right now, Angel? I have. Tell I have. me a little bit about it. What have you, what have you seen first off? Well, um, I saw Lightyear like last week. Well, I wanted to see Lightyear this weekend, and my plans changed dramatically when I was planning on going. So I was going to take my 10-year-old to see it because I know how much you love the Mm -hmm. Toy Story uh, series. And listen, for you, you grew up as a kid with Toy Story 1 and and, and 2 and 3. So I can imagine, you know, the whole series is something that's near and dear to your heart. How did, and, and Adrian's movie reviews are coming back tomorrow, by the way, folks, for you wondering. When Adrian comes back, so do the movie reviews. How did you like uh, Toy, or the uh, Lightyear movie? I thought it was pretty good, honestly. Like, I was expecting it to be, like, a little worse than, than you know, I was like, ah, you know, maybe it's not going to be that great. You know, it's a kid's movie. But I was, like, I was pleasantly surprised. You were? Yeah. All right. That's good. Um, 
Was it weird, you know, when you're the Lightyear character that um, wasn't uh, portrayed by um, the uh, the original, which is, mm. um, what was his name, from Home Improvement? Uh, Tim Allen. Tim Allen, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, honestly, like, no. It was like a whole thing, like, I guess the, the explanation, the in-universe explanation as a, you know, whatever. It was like, oh, yeah, you know, Tim Allen's uh, voice of Buzz Lightyear would be, like, the knockoff kind of, you know, thing because like in universe is supposed to be like, oh, this is the movie that came out like in the eighties, nineties that Andy saw in the nineties. Yeah. So you know But never... it's also supposed to be like a younger light year because yeah. technically it's his backstory. So mm-hmm. I can see how it's a younger voice. Yeah. With Chris uh, Chris Evans yeah. versus And he uh, did a good job. Yeah. All right. Nice. So you like that movie. Mm-hmm. All right. Good. What else do you get a chance to see? I got a chance to see Top Gun for the third time. I've, okay, I've good. seen it three times, but I, this time I saw it in IMAX. That one I saw uh, last Saturday, and that was... Is there a difference watching the film in IMAX versus the regular experience? Absolutely. Tell me why, just because it's, it's a wider screen? It's like uh, it takes over like your whole vision, like your peripheral, like the just the whole thing. It's such a huge, massive screen. Yeah. You'll step into that building and you'll just be like, oh my god. Oh my god, this 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 screen is like bigger than I, I don't even it's like about as it's huge. It's, that's cool. That's, <laughs> so you pay a premium to watch it in IMAX, yeah. but it's worth it. Now it's so I, worth it. I'll tell you, I thought of all the sequels I've seen, I don't know, in the last fifteen, twenty years, I thought they hit it out of the park with, mm-hmm. with Top Gun Maverick. And I didn't really my expectations were I thought it would be fun. I just didn't think it would be so good that it could be better than the original. Yeah. Which is the talk after uh, people had a chance to watch that. That's I mean, that's what I think. You know, that's my opinion. I'm like, well, I think that it's it's better than the first. But yeah. it's because it's like it's filmed in like they they were like actually in the planes. They were mm-hmm. you know, they were they're flying with, with the pilots and everything. It was yeah. You feel cool. like you're you feel like you're right. I mean, like yeah. I, I thought that was the way the first one was too. I never really felt like in the first movie you didn't feel like that. But I think they just took it. A, they just they mm-hmm. just took it um, a step beyond. Which when you're dealing with a movie almost forty years after the original, you figure, or thirty five years after the original, they could do that. Yeah, and it was. It was amazing. I mean, I was looking at all the behind-the-scenes stuff. That's that's what I tend to do when I'm, like, super, super into a movie. Yeah. Which I got super, super into uh, this new Top Gun is that they literally, they taught the actors how to operate those IMAX cameras on the in the plane. And they, like, stuck them in the plane right there. They, they had to operate it. They were oh, out wow. for a couple hours. They did their thing, and they came back. They okay. had, like... 80 hours of footage or something. That's amazing. So IMAX is the way to see that mm-hmm. movie. And you, you can tell it's, it's noticeably different than you saw before. Yeah. If you get a chance, get yeah. it, see it in IMAX. Okay. You know. Have you seen Minions yet? I haven't seen Minions. Have you seen, uh, what's it called, the, the Black Phone? No, not those yet. Okay. I've been, I've been here a lot. So I mean, yeah, I'm sure you have. You've been working yeah. a lot at the radio station, yeah. that's for sure. Um, for you, what's next up? You want to see the new Thor? Yeah. I think I'm going to see that one on Saturday. Okay. So, Love yeah. and Thunder. Nice. Mm-hmm. Good. But I like what you've seen so far. Uh, have you seen the new uh, Elvis movie? You know, that one is like at the very top of my list. I think after this, honestly, I may just go to the movies and go see it. I've heard myself, great so things like, about the I Elvis movie. I really, really want to see it. People that have seen that have told me that that that's another one that yeah. they did a terrific job. The actors and everybody mm-hmm. involved. But think about this, okay? Whether it's Bohemian Rhapsody, 
the new Elvis movie. There's a Bowie uh, you know, biopic coming out. You also had the Elton John movie, Rocket Man. It seems like people have been getting those right. Like that's yeah. for the most part, all those all those biopics on the uh, musicians, they've done really well. They've been pretty good ever since um the wave started with the NWA biopic mm-hmm. back when like or I, I should say maybe the Johnny Cash biopic with uh, Joaquin right. Phoenix like 15 years ago. No, that's it just kind of like started the whole thing. That's a good point, too. Well, yeah. listen, you did great with us today. Thank you for giving up your afternoon with us. We appreciate it. And, Thank you. Uh, hey, look forward to hearing you back on the uh, Chihuahuas broadcast real soon. And uh, look forward to seeing you back with us on Sports Talk Down the Road. I'm excited to be producing some some shows in the future you know whenever you need me i'm i'm here looking forward to that yeah. thanks again he's angel munoz so along with uh, jason craig uh, got us through uh, last uh, friday and also today's show adrian brought us back tomorrow but for angel i'm steve have a great night everybody